Adam, I have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Are you a replicant or a replican? It isn't hard to tell, but I'm broken. story where we watch movies deconstruct them and see what we can learn from them adam welcome back uh so it's been about uh a few days since we recorded the arrival podcast any residual thoughts on that i think i'm still right about the midpoint but apart from that I'm about- <laughs> <laughs> what was the, what was the midpoint what was the midpoint for, you me, for me the midpoint was when they got thrown out of the ship and it moved away as a result of the soldiers attacking. So it's literally like she's at the closest moment to what she's trying to achieve, to having a conversation and understanding the motives and the purpose of the aliens. And suddenly, bam, she's flipped out of there. She's thrown straight out and off goes the craft. So, um, I, yeah, we're going to, we're probably going to chew up too much time on that. I'm with you <laughs> that a midpoint can happen at any point, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. midpoint happens right at the point where, uh, usually act two is all about the progress toward the plot, uh, toward the climax. And then they hit a false climax that suddenly sends them spiraling into a reactionary state. And mm-hmm. I, and with, uh, arrival, they were making all that progress right up until that, that, um, uh, the moment before that, which I'm even blanking on what actually the midpoint is when Shang announces that he oh yeah when Shang announces that they're yeah that they're going to war sure like from I that point they... on everything is like fuck we've run out of time there's no more time you have to go in there and pose the question but it's so and for me that's so anticlimactic because it's not really it's not a set piece it's not it doesn't have a, like the emotion attached to it doesn't seem as high because it's a very subdued kind of scene although like yeah. the the stakes are high because of what they're talking about you don't feel it in the scene in the scene what you feel you feel that the stakes are, are kind of the, the rug is really pulled out from under uh-huh. when she's about to have that connection i'm about to get exactly what i'm looking for we're having the conversation they're gonna tell me oh no pulled straight out and it's you know it's in the same sort of time frame as that mm-hmm. part of the movie anyway but i just feel like that is the moment where it's like gotcha actually it's it's almost 10 minutes later and that's the other i think oh, is it's, it yeah there's that's there's like the, a 10 minute uh, lag between the two different things because you got to go in and pay, pose a question. Then after that, they get offer weapon. Then after that, they get the explosion. Then after that, they have all these other things. Then yeah. the ships uh, close up and close up shop. Sure. Like by then, that's when we're at our low point. Mm-hmm. So, but you make a really good point is that usually the midpoint feels like there's a trap door that opens up beneath the characters. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, in, in this case, they were doing everything they could to make progress. And then as soon as uh, Shang declares war or mobilizes, it's his first act of war. And all of a sudden he's saying, we don't have any more time for you to take, you know, we don't have any time for you to learn the language. Anyways, we're arbitrating this like long past two. You make a very good point that it doesn't have that emotional uh, trap door beneath it. So that's, that's, that's something I could reevaluate. But today, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049. 
You've got a story inside you. A screenplay no one has ever thought of. A novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept but you don't know how to develop a character. Much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the 4-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the 4-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guides you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately, they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate or not? Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way... Here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more, better, faster, doper. But today, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049, uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, do you want to give us a little uh, lay down of, uh, or a little layout of the film? Sure, absolutely. So yes, back into Denis Villeneuve that I'm like I'm very happy with. As uh, he's one of my most kind of inspirational inspirational or influential directors at the moment um the release of blade runner 2049 was actually on october 5th 2017 it's a sci-fi mystery uh it stars familiar faces like ryan gosling harrison ford who was going running the gambit of reprising all of his previous roles (laughs) at a particular stage um which surely he's he's complete that at, at, at this point unless we're getting uh um witness two or something like that and then we are, we also have jared leto uh playing his typical kind of creepy uh, <laughs> uh role that he's used to that he, that he enjoys doing the writers are hampton fancher who's returning from the first uh blade runner movie mm-hmm. michael green who mm-hmm. has a series of hits and misses uh hits such as logan misses such as green lantern so there's a yeah. uh, he's also he's, a hero's uh, writer 
He was a writer on the Hero right. series. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. I love that period of television. Uh, that's that's he, the fun he's on American movie. Gods as well. Yeah, oh, okay. he does, he's I got didn't some know that. He's got some good TV stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the film is based on the novel uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. So nice. um, that's where the uh, where the writing comes from. The budget was $150 million, and the gross revenue was $267.5 million. So it did quite well in terms of getting its returns. Interestingly, What was, what was the opening? Do you know? The opening was... I think it was at 32 million. The opening was... For those of you at home, that's the opening box office. So the opening weekend. Uh, A lot of studios measure the success of their film by the opening box office. Uh, They they tend to predict like the the overall um, value or or, uh, success of a film based on like how the opening weekend does. And you're absolutely spot on. The opening weekend was 33 million domestic. 33 okay. For a $150 million budget. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember um, how, I don't remember having much of a conversation about it and the time that it came out with my peers. So I don't know how well marketed it was. I knew I, I, knew I was interested in seeing it, but mm-hmm. it was mostly because, again, I was following Denis very closely at the time. So that kind of wanted me to watch it more than anything else, not because I was a particular, particularly big fan of the original. Um, but, oh, really? Um, so yeah, you, weren't, yeah. you weren't much of a fan of the... I've seen it, but it was, I mean, it was before my time when it was released. And then by the time I got around to seeing it, I was, uh, that was kind of my film school days. And, and, and like, I, I certainly, I enjoyed it. Um, but it wouldn't have been one of the ones that kind of, I was like, yes, that's one of the, you know, top 10 films of all time. Kind of, I know a lot of people are really into the Ridley Scott, but, um, not, it it didn't, didn't blow me away. Uh, good film though. I didn't, I did enjoy the first one. The second one on first viewing, I enjoyed much, much more, but Mm. On second viewing, rewatching it for this, I actually think that the first movie has a lot more going for it. Really, probably debatable, but yeah, there's, okay. there's something about the second one that, that watching it the second time, I was like, oh, actually, this is not as um, heavy hitting in terms of its um, in terms of its metaphor as I, as the first one. I think, uh, just in my opinion. Um, the okay, rotten well, I think we'll have a really interesting conversation about that. Like, okay, so cool. real no, quick, no, my, no. my, my intro into, so I loved Blade Runner. I saw it when I was a kid, just like you, I'm mm-hmm. sure. And, but I was really into, uh, comics at the time. And I was, uh, into this one particular comic by Matt Wagner called Grendel. And there was a series, a short series, um, that, uh, Matt Wagner wrote and the, uh, Pander brothers illustrated. And it was all about Christine Spar hunting down this uh, uh, kabuki vampire. And it's, it's just amazing illustration. It's a, a huge, huge influence on me as an artist and a writer. Like right, right when I was about 11 years old is when I first got into it. And it was heavily, heavily influenced by cyberpunk and in particular Blade Runner. So okay. watching, reading Grendel and seeing all the 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 Blade Runner influences that that's what made me fall in love with Ridley Scott and Blade Runner as a kid. So ever since then, I've just been like, I, I love that movie. Absolutely love the original. And I think Denis Villeneuve lives up to it. Like, I think he takes what's already there. He always does this. He takes what's already there and still elevates it even more with lots of layers and lots of beautiful imagery. 
But do you, which version do you subscribe to as being canon, though? Because you have the 1982 version. Then I don't care have... about canon. I've never cared about canon. <laughs> I don't give a shit about canon. Like, I'm only but interested is in... The 80s version you like? What's that? The 80s version. It's the 80s version is the one that you watched and enjoy the most, or or the updates where they introduced the unicorn running through the, you know, the, the, the unicorn Well, that was director's and... cut. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's... I think it. I think it's more fun when you talk about the metaphor that the unicorn and that he's a um, that he is a replicant that Deckard is a mm-hmm. replicant. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because I'm fascinated by the concept of consciousness and free will, and I sure. think that the idea that he doesn't know that he's a replicant is a fascinating idea. And mm. I know a lot of people hate it. Um, I think it's fascinating because of the nature of consciousness, and yeah. we, we'll get into that a little bit today. Um, Absolutely. But as far as like, which one do I like more, the original or the 2049? I love them both. Honestly, I would have a hard time. I mean, I definitely have a bias to the first one because I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like this one disappointed at all. And no, it, it, I don't think it disappoints. I don't think yeah. it disappoints. But I, 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 did, I didn't have the bias towards the first one because I wasn't crazy about it. Yeah. But on, yeah, as I say, on second viewing of this one, I do think that the first one kind of has a little bit more weight to it. Okay, interesting. And neither neither disappoint though. Neither disappoint. Yeah, no, both of them I think are beautifully done. I th- I still think mm-hmm. Blade Runner and Alien are two of Ridley Scott's greatest movies ever. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. uh so box office it was a success. 2049. It was a success in the box office. It was also a success on Rotten Tomatoes and interestingly the critics gave it 88% and the audience gave it 88%. So it's exactly <laughs> commensurate. Okay. Yeah. So uh, obviously, you know, 88% is, is hard to come by. Very strong, um, strongly received. Uh, the logline, and we know we don't like the IMDb loglines, but maybe we want to <laughs> give this a bit of a, a rejig, but it says, Young Blade Runner K's discovery of a long-buried secret leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, who's been missing for 30 years. So it doesn't say very spoiler. much about That's in the IMDb? <laughs> That's a major spoiler. If you haven't seen the movie and you're any fan of a Blade Runner at all, or even if you're new to Blade Runner, the IMDb gives away the big reveal that, Mm -hmm. that so much marketing withheld. Like there was, there was a huge push to hide uh, what uh, it was obvious that Harrison Ford was part of it, but they didn't know Mm -hmm. if it was going to be flashbacks or anything like that. So when you watch the movie, it was like, it's playing a very specific role that they, they didn't want you to know going into the movie. And for yeah, very yeah, yeah. good reasons, very good dramatic reasons. And IMDb is just like, ah, fuck it. Just spoil everything. Oh, man, <laughs> that breaks my heart. It's just trying to get all the Harrison Ford fans directly in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true, actually. Uh, um, yeah, so that's up. all the setup for the, uh, for the film before we start dissecting. Fantastic. All right, well, let's jump right into the Viva section, the dissection, the deconstruction, whatever you want to call it. This is where we focus on uh, figuring out the story structure. We look at the large tent poles of the dramatic turns. Uh, and from there, once we map out the kind of, uh, you know, 10,000 foot view, then we go in closer and look at the overall structure. And the point of this is just an exercise to help us as writers, as story development artists, to understand what the dramatic turns that need to take place and the machine that's working underneath the visuals. Um, there's, uh, I, I can say as a storyboard artist, there is a tendency for people to say, look, like for writers and directors to think of storyboard artists as, look, I write the story. You just make the pretty pictures. 
when the reality is, is as storyboard artists, we need to understand the dramatic structure because we need to think like directors and we need to think like writers. Uh, as writers, all the more, all the more so, we need to understand the the dynamic story dynamics and the story structure. So the, these looking at great films and even some not so great films helps us to understand how this story structure works. And when we're working on a sequence, we need to understand the context in the film. And uh, so these this exercise in looking at story structure and dynamics helps us to recognize. Uh, it trains our brain to think of in story terms, not just in beautiful images, not just in spectacle. We need to immerse ourselves in the cinematic experience. So that's what we're hoping to do. Um, so, and we always start off with uh, the timeline. We're looking at, let me see. Uh, we're looking at a two and a half hour movie. So this is a, uh, it's a little bit longer for a tentpole movie. Um, do you think it, it earned it? Do you think it's worth the two and a half hours? I think so. At no point, like the only time I think a movie doesn't deserve its runtime is when it has lulls. When if there's any point where you feel feel the te- the the necessity to look at your phone, look at your watch, yeah. yawn, and roll your eyes, there that's the only time where you need a you need a a, a, a more fine tuned edit. If you're engaged the entire time, it can be five hours long. I'm still watching the Lord yeah. of the Rings extended edition, you know, from top to bottom, so that I have no no problem with a, a lengthy runtime. Yeah, it's like whenever I go to like indie film festivals and watch short films. Those seem to be the longest, like, yeah, short, yeah, yeah. it's before they figured out, like, okay, the editing is about keeping your audience engaged mm-hmm. and telling it in the most uh, compelling way. Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I think 2049 is uh, really, really compelling. It's really well paced. It keeps you really engaged and constantly is laying down questions that keep you moving forward. Okay. So the first thing we want to do when we're identifying the, the overall structure is ask the question of the dramatic question. And of course the dramatic question is posed as will the protagonist achieve X? Uh, so in the case of Blade Runner 2049, Adam, what is the dramatic question? Okay. So I, I struggle with this a little bit because I think to a certain extent, it's kind of in your face. And then when you really kind of try to analyze where the film goes from there, I don't know that it continues to follow the same question the whole way through. So I would posit that when, when Kay is initially sent on his quest, he is told by, I think it's Joshi is the, his, his superior's name. Yeah. She is, she t- basically tells him he is tasked with going and finding this child born to a replicant. And so, and, but also what she tells him to do is it must be eliminated. And so when I'm thinking about where does this story go and what is, what is Kay actually intent on doing at every point in the movie up until the climax, I don't know what the if either of these questions are the dramatic question considering what his actual conscious desire is so i i could posit that it's will k find the child mm-hmm. will k kill the child but because of different things that he discovers along the way that those questions go completely out the window so yeah. i'm not sure I, I could be completely off base altogether so i agree with you and i disagree with you specifically because uh, it's a very specific verb she uses. Go erase the child. Erase. Okay. It's not just erase. retire. It's not kill. It's not even eliminate. It's erase mm-hmm. the child. And um, and I think that's a very important thing. So I put the dramatic question is, I, I think you were right 
And I do think it ends up being the, so the, the dramatic question, the climax tend to be the spine of the story. The relationship between the question and whether that question is fulfilled is what draws every single scene together. And the dramatic question and the climax in this case, I believe are very specifically linked. Now we do learn more about the dramatic question, which causes K to question whether he even wants to be a part uh, or finish answer the dramatic question or whether he's going to answer in the affirmative or negative. Yes, he will. Or no, he won't. Um, but in the end, the climax still answers the question. Yes or no. Does he, uh, oh yeah, does he erase the, the child, the replicant mm -hmm. offspring? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, cool. So uh, the dramatic, que the dramatic question is linked to the climax. Oh, and sorry. When is the dramatic question? When is it uh, placed in When is it? posed in the story when does he so set out to pursue it What's when that? yoshi pre uh, presents the the command to him good okay so we we had a little bit of a conversation about this with the last one and mm -hmm. so when somebody is given the command of the dramatic question like it is technically posed in the story but it is not until the protagonist leaves to go on that adventure that they cross the threshold into the second act Mm -hmm. So usually a, a one actor of the first act is about uh, doing everything you can to present the dramatic question. And then you go into the second act, the moment the character steps into or crosses the threshold into answering the question. Sure. Uh, so I would say like Yoshi uh, or Joshi <laughs> Yoshi uh, presents mm -hmm. the dramatic question, uh, but it is not until uh, he leaves uh, to go to Wayland headquarters that he's that's when we cross into the beginning of act two is right when he goes to the Wayland headquarters. So that right. happens right on target. Usually this happens at 30 minutes and this, in this case it happens at 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from there we go from the dramatic question to the climax. Uh, what, what is the climax? Okay. So I, okay. I, this is where I struggle with this film more than I struggle with the first one. Okay. Because I think technically, now that we've like, cause this is the first time that you're, you're making me aware that the verb is actually erase, and you're absolutely spot on. She does say she says erase. So, does he erase the child? And again, we're getting straight into spoiler territory here. Yeah. Um, the fact that he is able to tell Deckard that he is now free to go and see his daughter implies that she he, she is no longer in danger of by meeting him and therefore she has been the the yeah the 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 fact that she is the child has been erased um that's the implication but for the fact that she that Deckard is now safe to go see her so when when i guess it's when Deckard says you should have let me die mm -hmm. and Kay says you did die yeah yep. telling him he's dead therefore it's done you're now free to go and see your daughter yep so i i would agree so this the exact the, the answer to the dramatic question is the affirmative yes, yes by faking deckard's death anna remains erased so erase means sever all connections that anyone could follow to connect uh, to reveal that Anna is the offspring of a replicant. Deckard mm -hmm. was that connection. 
So by faking his death and severing anyone who knew that Deckard was connected, except maybe Wallace. Well, except definitely Wallace. But as long as Wallace believes he's dead. This is where I struggle, though, because Wallace is not the only one trying to find out the information. So as the precinct is trying to find out the information as well. And Deckard is not the only one that has the information. True. So... I, I struggle to, to believe that like Decker could have, could have faked his death at any point in, in well, the technically he did fake his death and he's just so going back underground. Yeah. I, I, the, the first time it kind of flew over my head, but the second time through watching the movie, I kind of went, no, I don't buy this. I don't buy that. Sh- suddenly she's safe because Deckard was supposedly killed in an incident that nobody saw anyway. Nobody left living has seen. Yeah. Except Deckard. So yeah, you better I don't believe buy Wallace it. is going to invest a lot of money in making sure that that's, that's true. That's, that's a good yeah. point. Let's, let's get into plot holes a little bit later, but I, that's a very <laughs> good point. I, I kind of agree with that. Um, Metaphorically it works literally not so much. Well, it answers the question. Kay did everything yeah. he could to sever the connection and erase the child. So for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, as far as Kay is concerned, he did erase the child. Mm-hmm. Um, so then from there, once we have the dramatic question climax, we want to focus on the, uh, uh, of course there's a connection to the temple, the spine of the story. Uh, then we want to focus on the impetus. Uh, and what is the impetus for Blade Runner? I believe that the impetus is the discovery of a child born to a replicant. So they find a crate buried in farmer Morton's, uh, farm. And once they do an analysis of the crate, they discover that the child was born to a replicant. So it's when they're analyzing the bones. Yep, exactly. The bones reveal evidence of a replicant giving birth. Yep. So, which is, you know, a miracle. It's, it's supposed to be impossible. It's not supposed to be, uh, they're supposed to be assembled, not born naturally. Um, so, and when does that happen? That happens, I think that happens about 15 minutes in, right? Where it's, when they're analyzing the bones at the precinct. Uh, it it, it happens closer to about 25 minutes. So there's, okay. the interesting thing is, and this reveals something about the the character structure of the, of the movie. It's it's just about 27 minutes that the, oh, okay. the that it reveals that there is a re- replicant offspring. Um, and we go straight from the impetus to the dramatic question. Now, usually there's a bit mm. of buffer time between the impetus, you present the problem, and the next 10 to 15 minutes is a negotiation of stakes, which gets you to understand why this character would go on this adventure or, or seek after solving this problem. But in the case of uh, Blade Runner, I think it's perfect that it jumps straight from impetus to dramatic question. And the reason is, is because his loyalty and doing things without questioning it is central to his sacred values. Um, so so that, there's no that's, debate. Yeah, good, good presentation of structure right there because the impetus and dramatic question is here's the problem go solve it no questions and that becomes part of the uh the inner conflict that that he deals with mm-hmm. okay so from the impetus we want to um look at the midpoint and the low point and this kind of gives us kind of a sense of what the the second and third acts are all about now again we we go with uh, i go with the structure of four acts uh traditionally there's three acts where you have uh the, but the second act tends to be broken in the middle with a midpoint. Now I've identified, and this is the paradigm that I work with, is that the midpoint is a kind of false climax and therefore there's a shift in strategy. And I define an act as anytime there is a, uh, 
Let me hold for sound real quick. Anytime there's a shift in strategy, you have an act break. Um, and a midpoint is clearly a shift in strategy. That's why like in arrival, I draw the midpoint uh, where I do with uh, the mobilization because she has to change her strategy. She's no longer being like, usually this act two is about um, showing all the strengths of the character and they feel like they're making progress. Act three is all reactionary after the midpoint, everything they're doing is scrambling and we're seeing all the characters weaknesses. So those, those kind of, that's why those acts have that kind of power. And I think in this case, this movie also uh, stays true to that structure uh, conceit. Uh, so what would you say the midpoint is? I would posit that the midpoint is where Kay goes to visit Dr. Staline, who I is call her Anna. In- Anna, sure. Okay, yeah. so Anna is in in confinement, and she is a, I, I would describe her as a dream weaver. So she creates the images that the replicants are given in order to give them memories to kind of make them a bit more stable. Yep. So she so she first initially tells Kay upon uh, some inquiring that she there's always a little part of the the dream weaver the dream maker in the in the memories, but she says that it's not legal to put direct memories into real memories fully real memories into a replicant's mind, yeah. at which point he asks her to read his mind, to look at a specific memory, the memory of him holding the horse, the little horse model that has the birthday in it. She tells him that that memory is, is real and it's a memory of him as a child, which then leads him to believe he is in fact human. Good. I totally agree with you. Why, do, why is that the midpoint? Because that is what kind of sends him on a kind of a downward spiral. Uh, it, that is a, it's a, it is a realization that he, everything that he's believed about himself is a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it gives him more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you, you can see he's like, there's a visceral reaction to, that it's, it's disturbed him greatly to receive, receive this information. And, and obviously that, that sends him in a, in a, on an, it gives him a new strategy then as well to, to, to undertake the rest of his mission to find out the, the truth about this, this child born to the, to the replicant. Yep. Exactly. I, I perfectly said, I totally agree with you for all the reasons that you stated this from this point on he, before this, he was working for the LAPD and even for Wallace mm-hmm. after this, he's working against them. He's running from them. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that, that moment right there where he has the outburst is fantastic. So that feels like the trap door opens beneath him. It's sure. the biggest outburst yes, we get from him in the entire movie. So yes. yes, I would say yeah, it's a even very more, strong even more than the low point, even more than the low low yep. point. That is the most visceral experience that he has in the whole film. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love this performance in it. I actually love this performance yeah. through the whole thing. He's yeah. it calls for someone that is constantly repressing their feelings, and <laughs> yeah. Gosling is charismatic enough that the feelings are always just below the surface. Always, I mm-hmm. always feel like I'm reading his brain when yeah. you know it's it, it's fantastic. Really, really well yeah. performed. Okay, so from the midpoint, we want to go to the low point. What'd you what'd you take as the low point? 
So if the midpoint is the point where he comes to the belief that he is human and he's actually the child born of a replicant, the low point is when that is taken away from him. So he meets with Fraser Fraser after yeah. after being attacked by love and joy is destroyed. He's then brought to Fraser who informs him that the child born of the replicant was actually a girl. And so it can't be him. Yep. Okay. So um, I still think it goes a little bit lower than that. You think it's when he's talking to the to the to the massive joy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, I, I can, why do you I think it's not well. that? Why do you think it's not that? Because obviously you consider that for one of the candidates. I think that he that he he then once he's at the, when he's at the low point, which is where he's been given the information that goes completely against everything he discovered at the midpoint. I think he then has a question to answer as to how he's then going to live the rest of his life, and I think that it's in going to joy and her she this fake joy, like real joy has called him Joe because she because he she says that you're a real person now you need a real person's name we can't call you k anymore let's call you joe mm-hmm. then he talks to this basically advertisement version of joy after his own joy has been destroyed and she basically says you look like a sad joe so it's like oh this this is not this is not real nothing yeah. i've lived for nothing i've worked for at all has been real yeah and i've just been told like one of the things that Fra- uh, Frazier says to says to him Fraser says to him um during their meeting is um dying for the right cause is the most human thing we can do yeah and so he had he basically the moment where he decides that's what he needs to do he needs to sacrifice himself on the altar of of defending this child um that happens as a result that definitely happens as a result of that interaction with with um with that fake joy, the advertisement joy. But I think that him being in the dark, the dark night of the soul, I, I would consider to be slightly different from, from the, the low point, because the low point I feel like is the moment where he gets that stab in the heart, which is when he's told that he's not the child. And I think he just, he needs that extra bit of inspiration to go on and do what he has to do when he's talking to Joy. But I think it's that, for me, it's the moment that he's told that the, because it directly links with the midpoint as well. You know, he's told, he, yep. he comes to the belief that he's, that he is the, he's the child. Mm-hmm. And then the low point, no, you're not the child. I think that there's, there's a very strong, um, you know, uh, continuity there. And him having that realization, although like we said, we said, we, we've already pointed out the midpoint is where he has the most visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. The second most visceral reaction is not when he, when he's talking to the fake, to the, to the animatronic uh, hologram of joy. He it's when he has that conversation with Fraser and it's like, it's not you. And then she says to him, you thought it was you, didn't you? We all do. Like, that's a really pivotal conversation. Right I agree. At the point where I agree. It's pivotal. Yeah. In the stones. So the reason why I believe it's the uh, the blue fairy scene, uh, blue fairy, okay, yeah, the is the fairy with the blue hair, is specifically because I think um, Fraser ripped the bandaid off, but he didn't look mm-hmm. at the wound until he was forced to by seeing Fre- by seeing uh, Joy for what she was, mm-hmm. and we're gonna dive into a little bit more of why I think th- it was that moment. I do think it, that's the long dark night moment. 
And I always mm-hmm. think the low point is the long dark night of the soul, you know? Uh, um, I see. I, I, sometimes I kind of, I see a slight distinction between the two, but I totally okay, get what, what distinction do you see? I think that the dark night of the soul is the, med- the dark night of the soul is the meditation having received the wound of the low point. So like the all is lost moment is the, is the, the, the final wound that the character must receive in order to ascend and, but I think that the Dark Knight of the Soul is the meditation thereafter, where he considers and contemplates yeah. what he needs to understand to go and do what he finally has to do in order to achieve his goal. Yeah. So I would say that, like you can you can structure things any way you want, and the low point, um, you you could separate those things traditionally. Traditionally, in most cases, emotionally, you have the character arc and the epiphany at the low point. Mm-hmm, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about character arc in this in this story because there's a very clear character arc um mm-hmm. and um so that that low point is that that moment where you're forced to see a reflection of yourself you're forced to look into yourself and you uh and that's what causes the transformation or the the epiphany to realize i have to take a new path and this is the new path now mm-hmm. uh when fraser rips the band-aid off um, I think he's reeling from the wound, but I don't think it sinks in till he had to have that moment of epiphany until he's looking at joy and she's exposed for the, the device that she is. I don't want to reveal mm-hmm. what device it is yet, but, mm-hmm. um, but that's why I would say that, uh, yeah, the low point is the blue fairy epiphany on the bridge okay. and it's specifically constructed on a bridge. So he's mm-hmm. crossing in the rain. Where he's having in, his baptism in the rain, <laughs> exactly. We're we're going to talk specifically about water and what water means in this. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So from there, uh, so we've got the dramatic question, climax, impetus, midpoint, low point. From there, we want to go to the hook. What's the hook? So the hook is the opening scene where Kay visits Farmer Morton, a Sapper Morton, and yeah. he is doing his Blade Runner duties, where he has to either he has to take a Sapper Morton in. Um, mm-hmm. and he, they end up getting into a physical conflict and Kay kills Morton, uh, and Morton, after Morton says to him that he is, he's, t- he's talking to him about why, why he's doing that job. He says he's scraping the shit because he hasn't seen a miracle. So dropping yeah. a kind of a bombshell, opening up the film, yeah. you're only obeying the orders that you're doing right now because you're, you're, you're here. You're, your job is to scrape the shit. And the mm-hmm. only reason that you're doing it is because you haven't seen a miracle yet. And then you get the yep. question, okay, what miracle is he talking about? Yeah. That's the hook for the film. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Beautifully said. Totally agree with that. Okay. So from there, one thing I forgot to do in the last one is, is to look at um, what, uh, what is the dramatic or what is the act structure? So we've got act one, which is about half an hour. That's, uh, typical most uh, most story structures, most uh, film stories, feature film story structures. Uh, act two from dramatic question to low point or to midpoint um, that runs about an hour almost, um, 45 minutes. Uh, and then act three is actually pretty long act three. Usually act three is the big unraveling. So that, that usually takes a little bit longer, but this is really... Uh, it's paced in a way that it really immerses you. And that's mm-hmm. my favorite thing about Villeneuve is he's so good at, at, sh- at using spectacle to constantly be immersing you in the narrative. 
and never letting go to the point where you, you're just forgetting yourself completely. I, I think he's one of the great cinematic masters of our time. You're getting deeper uh, and, then, and deeper into the labyrinth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good metaphor. And then act four, very quick, uh, 30 minute or, um, yeah, very quick, 15 minutes, about 20 minutes altogether. Um, and so th- that's, that's actually fairly prototype. It's a longer movie. Um, so a lot of the, the structure, it's just act two and act three is a little bit longer time-wise than most films tend to be, mm-hmm. but it, the pacing and the editing and the direction were so compelling that it, it definitely earned that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we want to, uh, talk about some of the, just kind of get a lay of the land for the, the overall structure. Um, we've got the, uh, intro to joy. Uh, so in act one, act one, we really, it's very simple structure. We've got the hook where he gets some of the basic, uh, plot points. We learn the rules of the universe. They really spend a lot of time on joy when they introduce joy mm-hmm. and the emanator. That's like a 12 minute scene in a first act. That's a long time. And I think it's really important because it plays a big role in, um, in Kay's uh, character development and his arc in particular. Very on the nose with her name. <laughs> well, I think it's actually subversive. I, I think it's right. very okay. subversive. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about it. I, I think, like, it's probably one of the most sinister things about it. Joy mm-hmm. and love. That's not an accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? sure. sure. In fact, yeah. the way Joy fucks him up, I think, is much more uh, insidious sinister. than the way love does. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It, yeah. It's chasing joy and chasing love. Mm-hmm. Um so from there we have the Wallace headquarters. Uh, we intro, we intro love. Uh, we, uh, have the questioning of gaff. We get to see, uh, Edward James almost again. Yeah, really nice call back to the original. Um, we, and then we have, uh, we, we have a little bit of break where we start following love as a parallel story. Um, so she becomes a kind of protagonist of her own and we'll jump back and forth between Kay's story and love story. Um, and she, you know, obviously she works as a, a fantastic, uh, antagonist and a villain as well. Um, and then we intro, uh, Mariette, um, and Mariette is, uh, we learn later that she's part of this kind of replicant underground and she's posing as kind of like a, is she, is she like a sex replicant or like yeah, a sex yeah. worker? Yeah. A, a pleasure model. A pleasure. Okay. There you go. Um, and then from there, uh, he returns to the farm, and that's when he finds the date on the tree. Uh, very important. We go back to love. She steals the bones. That great scene where she kills Coco. It's right. so disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Josh visits Kay's memory, or Joshi visits Kay's memory. So this is where we learn about the, um, the, the memory that he's harboring, which he's pretty convinced is a real memory. Mm-hmm. Um. And then uh, is Kay the child? So this is the moment where he starts to say like, you know, my memory is connected to this link. Am I the kid? I would only have this memory if I was the one who was born. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then we go back to uh, the, he's, he's goes over to San Diego, which I love that now San Diego is considered like a municipality of Los Angeles because <laughs> it's expanded <laughs> so much, um, mm. which if you live in San Diego, that's, that's a hilarious joke. Um, and then he gets love bombed by uh, love. She does this the drone attack on all the other guys, mm-hmm. on all the uh, yep. scavengers. Scavengers. Um, let me see. Then uh, we go through the orphanage. He he sees that his memory actually is based in reality. 
uh, and he starts looking for the kid and he's slowly putting it together uh, that he is a real boy or that he is the product of a pregnancy. He is becoming more and more convinced and Joy is doing everything he can to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. Which, you know, first, real quick, I, w- I want to kind of call out the fact that, like, um, this is a, 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 this is cyberpunk, and cyberpunk is strongly influenced by film noir. Mm-hmm. And film noir is all about, like, uh, the moral ambiguity of going through these, like, um, dark underworld characters doing insidious things, sometimes solving a mystery or sometimes trying to get away with a crime, but the criminal is the protagonist. And that's, it was a post-World War II uh, film movement where it was, you know, no longer interested in kind of the idealism of propaganda. It started exploring this idea of, of subverting propaganda through telling morally complex stories. And cyberpunk takes that to the next level because it starts to introduce like um, dystopian dimensions to the, to noir, noir tropes. And one of the big noir tropes is the femme fatale. And, mm-hmm. um, and one of the big noir tropes always is the femme fatale is the femme fatale is the one that the protagonist starts to trust and invest the most emotion and also ends up stabbing him in the back. Usually the protagonist, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting in this case, who do you think the femme fatale is in, in this movie? Joy. Yeah. She's the one Absolutely. he trusts completely, but she stabs yeah. him in the back in a very subversive way in a way that's almost like, does that qualify as a femme fatale? Feeding into his delusions, right? Feeding like, into his really, delusions. Yeah. So she says, you're a real boy. And then he finds out the memory. It's interesting. Um, it, it creates this ironic, it's both good news and horrifying news that mm-hmm. he might be the real boy, that the memory is real, mm-hmm. which w- watching it the first time I remember being like, she said the memory is real. She didn't say it was his memory. So already I was suspicious, you know? Wow. Okay. Nice. <laughs> um, and then 48, uh, then he goes back to Joshi. She says, you got 48 hours to get baseline. Basically she's saying, look, I can cover for you to get out of here, but you're on your own. You got to run, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause Joshi, I thought of her as pretty a uh, sinister character, but she's yeah, really she kind of bad. like, you know, run for it. Like go for the hill, yeah, yeah. get out of here. She, she's, I mean, um, she also yeah. kind of she, she she does express a kind of a strange affection for him because even when she's mm-hmm. do, during the scene where she is uh, she's allowed to visit the memory before she leaves she kind of ha- she kind of seduces him or tries to seduce him at one yeah. point where she's like you know if, if I stay and finish this drink what's gonna happen gonna happen and he basically kind of gives her the you know, he brushes her off he's obstinate with her yep um, but there is a sense that she there, she she actually is interested in him in some way yep. Yeah, she's about to engage him sexually. She starts to seduce him, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Um, so from there, uh, the funny thing is we go uh, from the, he's on the run to straight to sex, which I thought was hilarious because it's kind of like, that's the thing you're going to be thinking about. Like he should be literally running for the hills right now. Uh, yeah, but yeah. then we have that, <laughs> that sex simulacra, which we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. Um mm-hmm. Uh, then we have the morning after scene, and this is where we reveal that Mariette is kind of working for somebody else. She's also another kind of femme fatale type where it's like she's engaging in him intimately, but, you know, she's planting that tracker on him. Good plot but point. she has she has the virtuous motives as opposed to... Well, we at this point, we don't know if she's virtuous. We just we know that know. she's tracking him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is why she wouldn't be the femme fatale because we're we're suspicious of her. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got uh, Love on the Run. <laughs> Lots of great puns for this. Love and joy. <laughs> so uh, Love's on the Run. Uh, then we have uh, the real, the, the, uh, the horse. Oh, he goes to find out that the horse is real wood. And that's what really clicked uh, for something interesting in this world. Wood is extremely valuable because there aren't any more trees because yeah, everything's yeah. synthetic. All the trees have been cut down. This is a, a total dystopian horror nightmare. So wood would be very valuable. And which ties into when you go into brilliant, when you go into uh, the Wallace headquarters, everything is wood. Mm-hmm. That would be the, the, the modern equivalent or our equivalent of, of everything being gold. Yeah. Everything yeah, plated in gold. Yeah. Uh, which I think plays into the overall metaphor in a really interesting way, uh, which mm-hmm. we'll tie into. But the, the point is, is it's real wood. And that tells you that there's real value to this. Um, and that's when it clicked for me that it was like, oh, okay, wood plays a very big role in the whole metaphor. Uh, and then love, uh, love is looking in all the wrong places. <laughs> so she's going after cake. <laughs> uh, then we go from uh, love looking in all the wrong places to, of course, Vegas, baby. Uh, and very deliberately Vegas, baby. Uh, <laughs> and then love kills Yoshi uh, in a really brutal, fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. Um, then we go to Deckard the Halls. Uh, he's running around <laughs> having a little waltz uh, with Deckard in the casino. Uh, and then, uh, and then we have the the conversation where we got Sinatra singing "One for My Baby" and "One More for the Road." One for <laughs> my baby, which is gr- it's just fun writing. Like he's playing with the kitsch and the corniness, but it's also lots mm-hmm. of layers to it. Mm-hmm. Um. And then we get the love raid. Uh, this is where love shows up, uh, kicks the shit out of uh, um, out of K, and then steals Deckard away. Mm-hmm. And then he gets uh, he gets picked up by the underground, the replicant underground, and they say you got to go kill Deckard. This is where they reveal he's um, only Deckard's death the chosen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, that's the, yeah. They're, they're sorry, yeah, they revealed that he's he's actually not the he's not, not the, the child. The he's not a real boy. He's not a real boy. Uh, and then we go to Uncanny Rachel, uh, the Uncanny <laughs> Valley of the fake Rachel. She had green eyes. Um, and basically, we revealed, the, the plot point is, is that Decker's not going to talk no matter what. They're going to have to torture him off world. Um, and then the low point, Blue Fairy Epiphany, Climax. Um, and then uh, nap time for Kay. <laughs> this is where he lays down on the stairs at the very end. And uh, I think they have- missed it. They, they missed a beat though on, on that one. So like it's nap time for Kay. And then we have Deckard finally meeting the daughter, the daughter, but the, the movie opens with the eye. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, and they missed the step. I think, I, I think after we, Deckard is introduced to his daughter for the first time, it would have been nice to go back outside to, to Kay and just have his eye close. Just like, have do, eye do the lost. Yeah. That's a great. <laughs> I, on. That is a really great take because I, I mean, is it his eye at the beginning? I, I don't think it's his his eye at the beginning. I'm not sure though. It could be, but they, there's no indication. There is they give no indication whatsoever whose eye, whose eye it is. Though it could be because it could be like he's literally just going out to go to Farmer Morton. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's literally just had to go baseline before leaving. Maybe I don't know. I don't, like, I, but like, it could be his eye. The, the the way we would know is if it was the exact same eye we're looking at at the very end of the movie, if it's that kind of blue green eye. But mm-hmm. I think just having the eye 
finish the movie the same way it started the movie, but it closes because he sacrificed himself. I think it would be would have been a nice way to end it. I think that would have been a really fantastic way of ending it. Except I, th- I missed a trick. <laughs> I'm not completely sure, but I think it might be Anna's eye. I want to I want to go back and and put that in there because it's. I know, still think it would have been good though. Because it would have been fantastic. Like that- if it's Anna's eye then it's like it also adds to the to the mystique of whether or not of who the real child is because yep. if it's Anna's eye but maybe we're assuming okay is that is that Kay's eye and then at the very end when we see that it's not that that eye is let's say maybe Kay has a brown eye and it's a brown eye instead it's like okay this is not yeah. the child but it's the sacrifice that was needed to be made in order for the child to survive and if the eye closes i think it would have been a beautiful okay so uh, i'm wrong According to online, like there's a close up. Somebody did have this theory that it was Anna's eye mm. and they're showing like it, it couldn't be Anna's eye. Okay. Unless it was like, it could be anybody. It could, it could be any man. I don't know. That'd be interesting. Worth exploring. Um, it's green. It could be Rachel's. Rachel had green eyes. Yeah. Rachel had green eyes. That's a really good point. Okay. So right now <laughs> that's uh so we've got the lay of the land. This is the uh, kind of the uh, 5,000 foot view of the stru- story structure. Uh, now we know what it looks like, what the act structure is and everything. Um, and then we have the kind of emotional arc and the thing that, you know, to remember about the emotional arc, you know, this, this kind of tracks the positive to the negative, the plus and the negative, anything above the line is leaning positive. Anything below the line is negative. And what we're seeing is that this is mostly a pretty stoic film, which is especially mm. typical of, of film noir. Film noir is all about everybody's keeping their, their feelings below the surface. They don't want to show anything but it has that kind of melancholy dreariness. So I don't, you know, the biggest jump we see is probably in the midpoint and then a gradual shift down to that low point until he gets that conviction, his blue fairy epiphany. Um, uh, so, and then we have uh, the motion line of love as a parallel story where she's just a straight line all the way through and not, not until she confronts and then she thinks she beats Kay and then at the climax, um, she realizes, you know, she thinks she's, you know, superior to Kay because there's this kind of sibling rivalry. One. What's that? Yeah. He, she says, I'm the best one. Yeah, I'm the best one, which is hilarious. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was your uh, issue. Okay. <laughs> but it is, I do think it plays into the theme of sibling rivalry, which um, we'll talk a little bit about. Okay, yeah, yeah, All right. Yeah. So inner conflict. And the, this is where we want to use, uh, so we, we evaluate structure so that we can come to an understanding of the character. And the structure is always a reflection of how the character solves the problem. The plot is always a character uh, pursuing a problem and how they deal with all the different conflicts and the trials they go through. So um, the, the plot is always directly connected. It's a revelation of the inner world and the transformation of the inner character. Um, and, and also it's, it's a lack of transformation. Like not every movie needs to have a character arc. Uh, do you think this movie has a character arc? Mm, yes i do i i mean because the character because the inner conflict is so closely related to the the plot uh, obviously they're completely intertwined and the fact that i wasn't entirely sure as to what the dramatic question was until we until we discussed it just now i was hesitant to really kind of dig too deep into it um but just so I'm going completely on face value, interpret like just interpreting the what I perceived K to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I do think I I do see. I don't think there could. I don't think you could say there's no character arc when it it requires a change in him at the low point in order mm-hmm. to do what needs to be done in order to to achieve his goal. If he didn't have to make that change, then if if he has to make that change, an arc is necessary. I that just just my thirty thousand feet perspective. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I do think there's a character arc and let's, let's dive into it. So uh, the, the character arc uh, is the, the product of the inner conflict and the inner conflict. Um, I approach it from uh, kind of five different dimensions. And the first dimension is conscious desire, which reveals an unconscious drive, which exposes the Achilles heel, which is confronted by the moral imperative. And then the moral imperative gives us the theme. We're going to talk a little bit about those dynamics and how they work together. Um, let me check our time real quick. Just make sure we're flowing along. Okay. We're at 56 minutes. How are you, how are you doing with time? I'm all good. Awesome. Cool. This no cause we're, we're just start getting started now. We're just getting uh, warmed totally. up. Totally. Um, okay. So conscious desire is the, the problem the character sets out to solve. Um, and it is directly connected to the dramatic question. It is the, the problem the character s- intends to set out to solve. It is very plot-based, and it begins to reveal the subtext and intentions beneath it. So in the case of Blade Runner, what is the conscious desire? Conscious desire is to erase the child. There you go. Very simple. Uh, will he erase the child? That is his conscious desire. He wants to set out and erase the child. He wants to do exactly what he's commanded to do. Uh, what is his unconscious drive? Why does he want to go uh, erase the child? Okay, this one is a little bit... I struggle somewhat yeah, because it's ultimately... I, because I, I, I struggle to, to, to decide whether the unconscious drive is something is the thing that's niggling at him or is it very much the, the specific necessity to uh within him that compels him to go and do what he's doing the thing that's compelling him but maybe this is conscious so i maybe i I could be off here but the thing that's compelling him is is his obedience he must be obedient to the to to joshi so Mm -hmm. i don't know if there's an unconscious drive is is just to obey or is there something more is there something deeper there uh so obedience is an action the unconscious drive is the values that drive his action um, so, so his values would be to, to, to yeah. be, let me, let me yeah, say a quick a- word. Cause this ties in directly to the moral imperative. Um, so the unconscious drive is uh, we all have a value systems and those value systems is different for every single individual. Um, and the value systems are primarily connected to the sacred and the profane, that which we hold sacred and that which we fear or hate or dread because it threatens that which is sacred. So the sacred and profane always compose the core values. Every other value we have is connected to and ancillary to that. So the unconscious drive, the the most compelling stories are stories that cause people to reckon with their value system. Arcs are all, a lot of people think arcs is just like where the character changes. I don't think that's saying enough. Uh, An arc is engaging people's sacred values, forcing them to confront the sacred and the profane, and then causing them to remap their value system. That's when we have a complete arc. 
Um, so the unconscious drive is the sacred and the profane values that propel them to do what they want to do. Usually the unconscious drive is a character trying to prove something about themselves. So in the case, I do agree with you that obedience is a huge value, a sacred value. Obedience and loyalty are huge sacred values for K. And what he's trying to do, I believe, uh, with the context of that first act, really clearly shows he's trying to prove, um, I believe his unconscious value is he wants to prove that despite being a replicant, he's a valuable Blade Runner. In other words, he wants to be seen as a real boy. He wants mm. everyone to see him. He, he wants to prove to everybody that he's loyal, that he'll do what he's told, and that no matter what, he can do the job. He wants to be the best of them. He wants to have value to the yeah. degree that he's almost elevated to the same level as. Which is why the skin job him. thing, it's intended to make it great on him. He feels mm -hmm. insulted. He feels that's profane to him. It's insulting. It's hurtful that he's being discriminated against. So he is doing everything he can to show that he is a good, a good boy, a good replicant or not a good replicant, a good blade runner that will always prioritize the well-being of humans. So Does his Joshi say to him the first time that he leaves the, 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 her office, like you're a good boy, something along those lines. She uses. Yeah. She says you've done pretty well without a soul. Yeah. 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 But she, no, but there's a point where she asks him, are you going to, to do what you're told? And he's like, I didn't know I had any other option. And she says yeah. something like good boy. Yeah, that's later on, right? Right after the uh, the seduction. Right, scene. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. she does actually almost kind of the scratching behind the ear, kind of you know. Yep. Like you're a good boy, kind of. Oh, yeah, she's yeah, constantly yeah. mothering him in a really interesting yes. way, which I think is yeah, yeah, yeah. great for the theme. Mm -hmm. so for sound. Did you hear that at all? Is it picking up on yeah. the honk? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll cut around it. Um, okay, so we've got the value which he wants to prove that he's a good boy, basically a good, uh, good LEPD, good Blade Runner. Uh, and then we go to the Achilles heel. Now the Achilles heel is a belief that is nested within the sacred value. It's within, it's nested within the unconscious drive. And usually this understanding the Achilles heel is the key to understanding a character arc. A, a character arc is totally defined by the Achilles heel. And the Achilles, the Achilles heel is usually um, a belief that is no longer functioning or it's a false belief that belief drives people to um, make decisions that are usually keeping them or sabotaging them from accomplishing what their objective is. So when they set out on an, a, on a, an adventure, every single conflict is going to force them to reckon with that false belief. It can be a false belief. It, that's why I'm reluctant to call it a flaw. I'm reluctant to call it a false belief. It can, in the case of like um, rites of passage and maturity, it's not that it's a false belief. It's a belief that no longer applies to the moral sphere that you're navigating. And that's where a character arc happens, which mm -hmm. we'll get into with moral imperative. So in Achilles heel, he believes something that it's a sacred value that he's going to have to have to reckon with. In the case of Blade Runner, what do you think that, uh, that Achilles heel is? Um, so it's, it, it, sorry just one more time the, the connection between the achilles heel and the un unconscious drive if you were to sum up the d how it's directly comes from the unconscious drive yes it's nested within the unconscious drive it's it's a it's a sacred value existing in this in the unconscious drive 
wants to prove that despite being a replicant, he is a valuable Blade Runner. The Achilles heel is the the truth that he could never be a real boy. So what is he trying to prove to Joshi and to everybody? That he's really? a good boy. That he's, that a, good he's boy. a good boy. How does, that he he's prove that he, how does he prove that he's a good Blade Runner? By killing. Or by by bringing in the their, their, their replicants that they want to decommission. And if they don't come in willingly, they he kills them. Good. And you were tapping into that before. Like, he's a replicant killing replicants, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. obedience and loyalty. Like, sometimes he's like, wow, I've never hunted anything that had a soul before. Which is showing he has some values about the soul. He has some personal beliefs about what it means to have a soul. And she says, don't worry about it. You don't have one anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there's some oh. suggestion that he believes that a soul might have value or that there's a, even a soul that exists, which is a metaphor for consciousness. So um, I believe his Achilles heel. Hold on. His Achilles heel he, is he believes loyalty is more important than his own judgment. He, he puts more it's more important for him to do what he's told to be obedient than it is for him to use his own judgment in deciding what is right for him. That is the very value that's going to come into conflict. And if, if he wants to achieve the objective of erasing the child, he's going to have to reckon with this one single Achilles heel, this one flaw. Now, a lot of people talk about character flaw as if it's like, you know, this adds dimension. It, it does add dimension, but what it really is, is it's the engine that is driving the character that they're going to have to reckon with. If you have a story that is transformational, if the character is transformational, they're going to engage their sacred values, um, which is where we the, the Achilles heel always comes into conflict with the moral imperative. Now, I've had a lot of questions about moral imperative um, recently. It's one of the things that, uh, it's it's something that I've kind of, if I have a contribution to the conversation of story structure, this is something that I, take full ownership of. I also am constantly apologizing for how complex it is. Um, but I do think it is at the core of what drives story because the moral imperative, uh, is the, it's the superego. It's the, uh, the external conflict It's the source of all conflict in any given story. And it's very specific to, uh, addressing the Achilles heel. The, the Achilles heel uh, is the exact antagonist or the moral imperative is the exact antagonist to the Achilles heel. Um, and, and the structure of uh, the moral imperative is based on this idea of um, that every time you enter a new venue, a new situation, uh, I, I call it the moral sphere. That's, that's my term for it. And um, the, the morality is the sacred values that uh, you have to use to survive in any given field. So for example, in the Godfather, um, in the worlds of the Corleone family in New York, they have uh, uh, morals or rules that you have to live by if you're going to survive in that family. And as soon as you engage being uh, a member of the, the Corleone family, but specifically part of the, the mafia, do the family business, you have to navigate that sphere, which that's what's great about the Godfather is you have uh, Michael Corleone who's, who's completely rejected that moral sphere. He said, he says, I don't want to be a part of my family business until seeing his father shot down, gunned down in the street 
seeing his brother's not quite capable of stepping up to the plate. And he's the one who's smart enough. He's also a hero. Slowly, he starts to realize and appreciate, I'm going to have to navigate this sphere, which means I'm going to have to play by the rules of this sphere. So his character arc is all about how the external force, the moral imperative drives him to question his sacred values and shift them. And it's not until he um, makes that shift, makes that transformation to engage the moral imperative that he becomes, that he experiences the character arc and that character arc is completed when he accepts that he is the new Godfather. Now, um, and that's why the moral imperative, a lot of people say, well, isn't that just the theme? And the reason why it's not the theme is because um, we extrapolate the theme from the moral imperative, but uh, the moral imperative, the, the, the moral imperative is composed of a sphere, which is an ongoing dynamic moral system. And the theme is just a proposition about how you engage that moral sphere. It's the lesson we learn from this protagonist's engagement with the moral sphere, which means one moral sphere can offer hundreds to thousands of different uh, propositions, hundreds of different uh, themes. Um, but the story clearly articulates a point of view of that character engaging the moral sphere. Does that make any sense? <laughs> like, am I just like talking in circles or? It makes sense in theory, but I think without applying it practically, I was still personally, um, I, I, I very much struggle with, with delineating between the moral imper imperative and the theme. Uh, it's, it's, okay. it's, I, I, I understand in principle what you're saying to me, but until I see it in practice, I wouldn't be able to look at, and I wouldn't be able to vivisect another film and come away with a moral imperative and a theme. I'd probably end up coming up with the same thing for both. Okay. So yeah. That, that means I got my work to do. Cause I, I do want to make it so that like, uh, and again, this is art, which art is very subjective. I understand that at the same time, I do think that there are, um, there are techniques to identify meaning and, uh, context in particular context is one of the biggest clues in determining what, what different things mean or the emotional and theoretical significance of something. Um, but okay, let's, let's talk about the moral imperative of Blade Runner specifically. Um, so, uh, Blade Runner, the moral imperative is to uncover the truth about the replicant offspring. He must undermine his loyalties. In other words, if K is going to, um, erase the child first, he needs to learn the truth about the child. Then he's got to decide if that's the right thing to do. And the only way he's able to do it is by lying. Lying becomes his way of um, undermining, which lying is a complete contradiction of his Achilles heel. He believes that loyalty and obedience is more important than his own judgment. But if he's going to engage the moral, the moral imperative, this moral sphere says the only way you find the truth is by being is by lying to protect yourself until you can find the truth and then make a decision for yourself. So loyalty is moral imperative something that you that must be learned at the climax or in the in uh, at the low point or between generally the two. yeah generally it is used learned at the low point but there are lots of cases where it's not learned at the low point like look at Toy Story like you have uh, Buzz and Woody are stuck in a cage 
it's their low point and they're like Woody is trying to talk Buzz into like helping him escape that that box that he's stuck in. And he slowly realizes Woody's like Buzz, like you're a toy, but you're not just a toy, you're Andy's favorite toy. That's a really important thing. And that causes him to reflect on, wait a minute, why would anybody want me? I'm not a cool toy. I'm not a space toy. I'm just an old ragged cowboy. And that low point, that reflection causes him to say, oh, okay, I need to not try and be the best toy. I just need to put Andy's needs first. That's where his, his value system, his, his Achilles heel was that he believed he had to be the most important toy. And being the most important toy meant that he was loved. And it's not until he realized that putting the needs of Andy first, that he shifted, that he arced toward, uh, he shifted his value system. So that that's how the moral sphere uh, engaged or, or conflicted with his Achilles heel. And, and so the low point in that movie takes place? In Toy Story, it takes place when they're, uh, when they're trapped in the neighbor's house. Like Woody, Woody's underneath a cage and uh, Buzz is strapped to a... Uh, firecracker rocket ship and buzz is going through this existential crisis saying oh my gosh i'm just a toy i i, I was totally deluded and then woody's uh uh stuck underneath the cage that's the low point that's when they're like we're furthest away from solving our problem we're totally trapped and we're gonna get and that's where he discovers the moral imperative so it is at the low point uh, yeah exactly in that case it is it, it the, the the arc the transformation the epiphany happens at the low point but is there an example where the epiphany doesn't happen at the low point, where it happens somewhere? Good question. I can't think. I, there are. Uh, I remember uh, exploring a few different ones, but I can't think of any offhand. Okay. That might be a good video. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have like a discussion of like here's a series <laughs> of like the arc happening not at the low point. Usually, it does happen at the low point, but I can't think mm-hmm. of any exceptions to that. And honestly, so in, the whole point of the low point is to get the character to believe they need to change. Of course. Yeah, yeah. They have to hit the lowest. They have to have their worst day in order to achieve the the uh, the, the change required to to then go for their best day. But yeah. the, the moral imperative here, we're saying that he has to undermine his loyalties. But do, doesn't he start to undermine his loyalties from the midpoint? Because yeah. then he's... So he does. So this is a, is this an example of one where the where the moral imperative is learned at the midpoint instead of the low point? I wouldn't say he arcs. I think he's starting to experiment. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's not so until it's so. And the reason why is because well, we'll get into this when it comes to like what the story is really about. The mm-hmm. theme begins to shed light on it, but when we see what the story is really about, we'll see that the arc genuinely is not completed until he uh, has the blue fairy epiphany. Okay. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit why, when that comes in. But so from that, if, you know, if this is the, uh, uh, if this is the Achilles heel and the moral imperative, what's the theme we can learn from this? What do we learn from K engaging the moral imperative, this moral sphere? That using our own judgment is... Using our own judgment is a prerequisite to making decisions. Something along those lines. Um, yeah, actually, I think very much along those lines. I put it as this. The theme is the only way to embrace our humanity is to cut the strings of submission. Okay. So humanity 
is about using our own judgment, sometimes at the expense of our loyalties, at the expense of the obedience. Uh, and that's a theme I think is beautifully articulated in a very subversive way in this movie. Um, so what's this movie really about? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, obviously, so Pinocchio. Like, at what yes. point did you realize this movie was really about Pinocchio? Or that it was referencing <laughs> Pinocchio? At no point did I consider the story of Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, really? Like, yeah, didn't, until didn't just now? Me. Until just now. Whoa, yeah. okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, the first clue I had was, well, you know, he wants to be a real boy. As soon as I said, you want to be uh, a yeah. real boy. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So Pinocchio themes. But I mean, so Pinocchio themes are really typical in um, uh, in most like AI or uh, artificial intelligence and robot stories. Like it's actually kind of a trope that they're going to make some reference to Pinocchio. So like AI, the movie, Spielberg movie, and Kubrick movie was clearly a allegorical retelling of Pinocchio. Ex Machina makes lots of references to it. And then the movie Chappie. Um, so tons of movies about robots and AI as all this, this question of like what makes someone human or in consciousness and what is, what is something real? So real quick, I wanted to kind of just run through some of the parallels between Blade Runner 2049 and Pinocchio. Um, now I'm not just referencing the Disney Pinocchio, although I am specifically talking about uh, the Disney one, um, but also uh, the original, the novel that was written by uh, Carlo Collati. Um, so first of all, it's, it's about a puppet who wants to be a real boy. Uh, the book begins with uh, the, the very opening line, Century, centuries ago there lived a block of wood. That's the opening line to Pinocchio, which is really interesting for Blade Runner because they're talking about how originally when Carlotti wrote about it, most uh, mythology, most uh, stories were like, once upon a time, there was a king. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to talk about a king. I'm going to talk about something we all throw away, which is wood, something we mm -hmm. all dismiss. And wood doesn't really mean anything because it's just, you know, it's a block of wood. Um, but in this world, a block of wood is incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in fact, even like the interior of Wallace headquarters looks like the inner chambers of a wooden heart, which I think is very deliberately designed that way. It's not just a big open like wooden, you know, office or anything. It looks like the chambers of a heart with ventricles and uh, interior chambers. Um, and then we, we have uh, the strings are represented by his loyalty. So all of his character, all of his choices, loyalty are the strings that push and pull him. They're all the things that make him move that are not his own will, um, which plays into the theme of, of uh, Pinocchio being a boy who's running around without strings. Um, and then, uh, so in the original one, there was a, uh, the fairy with blue hair. Um, it's a big theme in the Carlotti novel. Um, in the Disney one, I think it was like a blonde fairy. But originally it was the fairy was this woman in blue hair and he went up to this house because he was running away from some people, he needed some help. He'd been robbed and he goes to this window and there's this woman with blue hair and it turns out that she's a ghost and she says, I'm actually dead. I'm waiting for someone to come and collect my body. Now this is a children's book. It's really mm. creepy. That's the first time he sees the blue fairy and slowly mm. through the story, he keeps seeing the blue fairy dead. 
Like he, uh, the blue fairy helps him out in several different situations. And then he like, for example, goes to find her. And rather than her house, he finds a gravestone that says I died because my little brother went missing and all these really creepy things. Then later she's resurrected. He meets this woman and she becomes kind of a mother uh, and begins to take care of him and starts to teach him what's right and wrong. Um, and that that's in the Carlotti book. They didn't, they it plays more of a magical kind of fairy tale thing with, uh, with the Disney version. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, from there, the blue fairy, we have Vegas, which is a parallel for uh, pleasure Island in the movie and then Toyland in the novel. What's the first line he hears from Deckard? Do you remember? The first, oh, I remember it standing out to me and now I can't remember what it is. He says something about cheese. Yeah. Is it cheese? Yep. He says you might happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, would you, boy? Right. And he's deliberately citing something. Do you know what he's citing? I don't. He is citing Treasure Island. So he's in Vegas. They're trying to establish that he's not just in Vegas. He does say that. He does yeah. say that he's, he's like pleasure Island. He says, all I can do around here is read. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is also a callback to the original Blade Runner had this deleted scene where they had um, in the opening scene, one of the, the, uh, the original Blade Runner was reading, he was in this hospital and he was reading treasure Island. And so that becomes kind of a theme. But in this case, that's the first line that Ben Gunn says to Jim Hawkins in treasure Island. And Ben Gunn kind of plays this character where he's kind of, he's kind of, Ben Gunn was marooned on an island and abandoned by his peers and left to die on this island. And he survived just on very meager things. So that speaks a lot to uh, Deckard's character. But the point of Ben Gunn was to say to Jim Hawkins is, hey, by the way, if you stick with this, you're going to end up like me, marooned on an island somewhere. That's the subtext of everything that's that's being said. Um, so, so that treasure Island is a callback to pleasure Island and specifically to Toyland. It's saying Vegas is a representation of that treasure Island thing. Um, and then, uh, uh, let me see. Oh, and then at the very end, of course, Kay goes to save his father and in uh, Pinocchio, he goes, he goes to save his father. Who's been swallowed by a whale. He went on a boat to go out and find Pinocchio and a giant mm-hmm. dogfish went and swallowed him. And uh, so Pinocchio went to go save his father from, from the belly of the whale or from the belly of the dogfish. Uh, mm-hmm. So those parallels. And then of course, at the end of Blade Runner, he goes to save his father who's on a, on a boat, a dinghy type of like future thing and crash lands on the dam. And then of course he saves him specifically from drowning. And the, again, this goes back into the theme of water and what, what drowning mm-hmm. would mean in this case. Um, so lots of parallels between Pinocchio, which got me questioning, uh, what, what is the story of Carlotti? Do you know much about Carlo Carl- Carlotti, the guy who wrote Pinocchio? Not at all. No. Yeah. I, I didn't know a ton. Obviously I was doing a lot of research in preparation for this podcast, but, um, so he, he, he's an Italian born in Florence, uh, born in a lot of destitution. And, um, he ended up moving to this town, uh, called Carlotti. Uh, or Colati, and he took on the, that name as his pen name um, because oh. where he from, it, it wasn't his original name, but that became his, his pen name that he used to uh, present himself to the world. Um, 
and it's kind of where he got his origin from. And he was born and grew up during the time where Italy was going through a unification process. Um, and unification was Italian unification was from like 1848 to 1870. He was born, um, in, uh, 1826 and then died in 1890. So a lot of his youth and early adulthood was right in the middle of this really interesting, turbulent time where they were, um, covering, um, uh, where like Italy was going from being like a, a group of, uh, they called them duchies, which is Italian for leader, uh, like principalities and states. And then during the unification, they all became one nation or one kingdom, the kingdom of Italy. Um, and that all happened during his period. And Carlotti started out as a um, political writer. And a lot of his politics were all about the importance of the unification of Italy. So he was largely a kind of uh, propagandist writing political essays on why it was important that we support the unification of these different duchies. And there's lots of divided feelings about it. Um, mm -hmm. And he ended up giving up political writing and then began, and he said, basically like, look, if I'm, if I'm writing for adults, they're already have their values cemented into them. So I'm going to start writing for children. It's, yeah, yeah. And so he wrote Pinocchio and Pinocchio is the story of a horrible child. The whole point of Pinocchio is all about this little like crafted puppet that screws over everybody. He behaves badly and lies to get his own father arrested in prison and then ends up going off to Toyland. He's a terror. And like originally in the, it started out as like a series of publications and newspapers or magazines and later is collected into a novel. But when it originally ended, it ended with Pinocchio being hung from a tree. And oh, then wow. people were so mad about it. They're like, no, no, bring him back. So they resurrected him. But literally Kaladi the whole time was writing him as like, this is, this is what happens if you don't teach your kids how to survive in the world. You got to teach them the values or they turn into Pinocchios. He was using oh, them wow. as a negative example. And then Disney came along wow. and said, actually, let's make him more sympathetic. Let's use him as an archetype for submission, obedience, for imposing values on them. And uh, right. so Pinocchio suddenly becomes the Pinocchio was a form of Italian propaganda for the unification of Italy. Okay. And, and I 100% believe that uh, Villeneuve was very aware of this. I think he's very yes. historically conscious when he's, when he's composing his films. Um, sure. And then uh, did like, so for example, the, the music, you know, we're looking at a lot of keys of like, okay, we're seeing different, story structures that are similar to Pinocchio. Um, did you notice uh, the ringtone uh, from Wallace? Like when he listens to the the joy thing, did you recognize yeah, that, that little theme? The, the ringtone theme? is Peter and the wolf, right? I, I Very think. good. Yeah, exactly. What do you think that suggests about uh, the story? I was trying to, like, it wolf? occurred to me when I, when, when I heard it, um, that, especially when it's, when it's more than once that it obviously does. Like it's not there for no reason, Yeah, but seven times, kind of, seven times, in the seven movie. times. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, the deeper, specific moments. Oh, okay. The, the deeper implication of it, I didn't, you know, it's a good trying to think about where that specific message, um, weave into the story. It wasn't, yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I haven't read it. I only know of it. So I, I don't know. Um, 
yeah, I don't know okay. what else to do. With that. Cool. So I did a little bit of a, a little bit of a deep dive. So the interesting thing is Peter and the Wolf, when I first watched it, I was like, oh, wasn't that like a refrain from uh, Pinocchio? I thought it was from the musical, uh, from the soundtrack of Pinocchio. But then when, like later I was looking into it, I'm like, wait, no, that's, that's Peter and the Wolf. So I started looking into Peter and the Wolf. Um, and it was written by Prokofiev, uh, mm-hmm. Sergei Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, who was born, uh, 1891, uh, in the Ukraine and then died in Moscow in 1953. So he's, you know, uh, more recent, slightly more recent. Well, he, he, he was basically born the year after, um, Carlotti died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was a Russian composer, pianist and conductor, uh, who later worked with the Soviet union. He's regarded as one of the major composers of the 20th century. And I love Peter and the Wolf. Like it's a, it's a fantastic composition. It's really beautifully done. And Villeneuve is very specific with the music choices. He's trying to say something in a mm-hmm. very subversive way about what it, what it means. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people knew that it was about Peter and the Wolf, but I think I might have identified why he's referencing Pinocchio, why he's referencing Peter and the Wolf and what it would mean in the narrative. Uh, so Peter and the Wolf was commissioned by the Central Children's Theater in Moscow in 1936. Um, and what's interesting was it was written specifically for this organization called the Young Pioneers. It was an organization in the Soviet Union. Um, and it was it's kind of equivalent to America's version of Boy Scouts. Do you have anything like that in Ireland? Yeah, we call them the Beavers. Yeah. Oh, the Beavers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. I think and it's, I think the Beavers is actually like the junior version. I think they do actually graduate into Scouts. I think we may have Scouts as well. Yeah. We may have Scouts. Okay. Yeah, we had uh, We Below's, and then uh, yeah, you weren't a Boy Scout until I think you were twelve or something. Yeah, so, I think it's something like that. I think we start with Beavers and then Scout Boy Scouts. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, I think we go from like Wolf to We Below to We Be Loyal Scouts, which is what uh, We Below means. Okay. Loyalty again. It's it's one of the themes. <laughs> Um, right. So uh, Prokofiev wrote this specifically for the children's theater, specifically for the young pioneers. Now what's interesting is what was going on at the time that he was commissioned. This was uh, the time of uh, uh, where Russia under Stalin and specifically this was invoking the Soviet cult of childhood. Now uh, they, they had this thing where um, this was according to, this is a quote from Lenin. He says, we need that that generation of young people who began to reach political maturity in the midst of a disciplined and desperate struggle against the bourgeoisie. In this struggle, the generation is training genuine communists. It's most subordinate. Uh, it must subordinate to the struggle and link up with it. Each step in its studies, education, and training. In other words, we need the young pioneers to be good communists. Mm-hmm. And that was the cult of childhood. Um, and, uh, so this was an, this was an, it, it's not just a, uh, theory about what, like it, Stalin was actively, uh, structuring their, uh, forming organizations around this. It says children in the Soviet union held, uh, this is by, this is from, uh, Boston university, by the way. Um, children in the Soviet union held a special place in the hearts of citizens in the party. They represented not only the innocence of youth, but also the promise of the socialist future. In order for the international Marxist revolution to succeed, uh, the youth had to be treated well and educated politically. Communist authorities took away roots to achieve this goal. Primarily, the Communist Party fostered a cult of childhood, 
much like Stalin's cult of personality, which idealized Soviet childhood. The Communist Party formalized this cult through youth organizations such as the Komsomol, the Young Pioneers, and the Little Octoberists. Um, and one more quick read. Uh, much as Lenin did in the 1920s speech of the Kom, uh, Komsomol, uh, this cult relied on a juxtaposition between true communists, real communists, uh, and everyone else. By institutionalizing this reverence for childhood, the Communist Party isolated those children who did not join the, uh, such groups and were in fact able to create a radical other or class enemy before citizens even in, uh, entered the workforce. So they're focusing on getting the children to think of anyone else who's not a good communist as not a real person, not a real boy. Mm -hmm. Um uh, the effect that these groups had was undeniable. The communists created secondary communist uh, communities for children to align themselves with rather than attach themselves more strongly to their families. So the party was more important to their own family. Soviet children were taught to prioritize communism above all. And these youth organizations provided the very first encounters with socialism. This had the significant effect of diminishing the role of the family structure, and these groups became the primary outlet for self-expression among Soviet children. To carry the identity card of the Komsomol was to declare oneself a loyal communist. And that's also true with the uh, young pioneers. So Peter and the Wolf was Soviet propaganda specifically for the cult of childhood. To be a real boy to be seen as a real boy, a real communist was to, was uh, the sacred value of the Peter and the wolf was representing that value, mm. which begins to open up something really interesting. Pinocchio is a story about Italian propaganda. Peter and the wolf is a story about Russian propaganda. And, and this is a little, a really interesting detail. Uh, 1977, uh, let me pull this up. 1977, RCA was looking to release a new version of the Philadelphia Orchestra conducted by Eugene Ormond. Uh, and they were reportedly turned down Peter Ustinov and Alec Guinness. Uh, Alec Guinness was in Star Wars at the same year. I was, yeah. Uh, and decided on, uh, so they decided on Bowie. He later said, Bowie later said he agreed to do it as a Christmas present for his son. And in December 77, he flew to New York and recorded his narration of Peter and the Wolf. Um, which is interesting because originally Villeneuve wanted to cast David Bowie as Wallace. No way. Yeah. So, uh, and, and he was also a huge influence for the original um, Blade Runner. A cyberpunk owes a huge debt of gratitude to a lot of the aesthetics that Ziggy Stardust and David Bowie developed. Right. Well, um, and it was like, according to Villeneuve, the very day they decided that they were going to approach David Bowie and ask him to play Wallace was the day, the day that um, Bowie uh, was pronounced dead, that the news came out. Really? Yeah. Heartbreaking, but a fascinating connection. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So then the question becomes, is Blade Runner 2049 propaganda? Is it propaganda or... Is it a warning against propaganda? Because it could go either way. What do you think? What's your take? Based on what I said, he, so he's using Pinocchio. And not only that, Peter and the Wolf and Pinocchio are both movies that were adapted by Disney. 
And Disney gave their own kind of treatment to further emphasize the kind of, this is what it takes to be a good person. Yeah. They use I think Italian propaganda and Russian propaganda. Good. I think all movies are propaganda or, or at least the, the significant majority of movies are, are, are propaganda. I think that's part of why you make them. Um, I, mm. I think like some are more insidious than others. I would personally, like it, it all comes down to whether or not you believe what the film is trying to encourage you to believe. I, I, you well, know, propaganda has very negative connotations, right? So yeah, let's, let's it, define propaganda just for, you know, a lot of people throw around the word, but let's define it very specifically and clearly. What, what is propaganda? Propaganda is the delivery of information in order to convince you of a particular worldview. Okay. I think that's a, a good kind of general. It's a bit broad. <laughs> key it in. Like according to that, isn't that every kind of art? What's the difference between, is there art that is not propaganda? Yeah, that's why I think I, I kind of, this is where for me, I do feel like, it, it, I, I guess it depends on the information that you're trying to smuggle into the, into the viewer's mind. Yeah. Um, I tend to view most movies as propaganda because they're trying to, to impose a worldview on, most films are trying to impose a worldview on you. Good. Okay. So I, I draw a very clear distinction of what is and what is not propaganda. So I okay. agree with you. Propaganda um, is a, uh, a piece of art, um, media, whatever, uh, that is attempting to indoctrinate. Mm -hmm. And indoctrination is the key term. Indoctrination specifically uh, denies you critical thinking. So the, the idea is indoctrination gets you to uh, just accept a value as true without critically evaluating it for yourself. So propaganda is, is intentionally trying to indoctrinate, impose their values on the subject without them having any defenses against it and accept it as absolute truth and then build loyalties and faith uh, as a kind of buffer to protect it and keep it as a dogma. So propaganda is, is, consider, is dogma. Which is why I would consider movies to be, generally speaking, by and large be propaganda because of the fact that when you're, in order to, like for, if you, the reason why we don't just all make documentaries about ideas is because when you're just delivered data, it doesn't have the same impact. Whereas if you smuggle data in through the heart, yeah. We watch movies because we have an emotional reaction. Yep. And so I think that when you like when movies try to get you to believe a certain character's perspective or a certain worldview as a result of feeling something that is in its own way uh it doesn't have to necessarily be insidious, but it is it's sneaky. You know what I mean? You yeah. are trying you're through the the art of manipulating emotion, trying to get someone to yep. believe something cerebrally cognitively so i yeah that's emotionally why I like in emotion absolutely i you totally agree with you through the heart and that's so to, me, propaganda to me what i would argue is art that is not propaganda because all art is attempting to give value to data there's mm -hmm. there's science which gives us information and art gives us meaning and it gives us meaning because it has that emotional context. It has, it's, mm -hmm. it takes data and wraps it in emotion. And that's how we internalize it into our internal map of values, the sacred and yep. the profane. Yeah. So, um, in the case of art that is not propaganda, 
is art that engages you just like any other art, even like propaganda, but then says it leaves a little thread that says, by the way, here's your string you can follow to get out of the labyrinth. I believe great art trains you to think critically to undermine or deconstruct the dogma that's being implanted in you. Okay. So again, now you're going to have to give an example of one that gives you the string and one that doesn't. Okay. To really Blade Runner, I believe is art that gives you the string that leads you out of the labyrinth. Okay. Blade Runner 2049. I actually think Blade Runner, the first Blade Runner does as well. Um, most of the Marvel movies, I would argue, they're pretty much just, you know, corporate propaganda and political propaganda, okay. um, which, so what's you know, they're the fine, but there's, there's not a, there's not, you don't see strands that say, follow this and it'll actually help you deconstruct what the value system is. But in this, Villeneuve has not just set one thread, he has set a whole tapestry of threads that if you start picking at any one of them, you're going to unravel the entire thing. And that's that's why I think Villeneuve is like one of the great filmmakers because he's not just doing prop. I think he is working. You know, Hollywood is propaganda. Like it's a propaganda machine. All commercialism has kinds of propaganda. It wants you to accept a value so that you engage it. And you know, as critical consumers, it's our responsibility to engage uh, information and data the way we see that we need to. It's 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 all about the exchange of of ideas. Um, so, so Blade Runner 20, 2049 is telling us that we, it, it, the, the, the information that's, if it was propaganda, it would basically be telling us that you, it's okay to disobey when you use your judgment. If you've used your judgment to identify a, a, a need just to disobey, disobedience is the correct course of action. No, it's not disobedience. It's your own judgment. Which is different. So disobedience, rebellion is just a different form of control. And this, this is something that this movie deliberately addresses. If you want to create a revolution, start oppressing them. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if a mayor wants a big budget, all he's got to do is, you know, provoke a riot and all of a sudden he's going to have the budget that he wants. So if he wants Mm -hmm. to expand oppression, then he can push for a revolution. And this movie is exactly playing with that. And, and you know, l- let me jump into exactly what I mean by that. And this is why I don't think this movie is propaganda. I think this movie is putting in the threads that help you uh, unravel the tapestry. It's specifically the Vegas scene. More specifically, this shot right here is where the entire movie unravels in a good way. And it's intended to. It's, it's this loaded ideological bomb that's underneath everything. That's it's why I love it so much. There's this one, um, I think it was in the times or something, a video where Villeneuve is talking about this scene, like the anatomy of a scene. And he talks about why this scene is so important. And mostly he says, look, it's important because of what it reveals. And I don't want to say what it reveals, but one of the things he says is this is the first time he, uh, K ever sees a bee, a living bee. This is not a, a robot. It's not a replicant bee. It's an actual living bee. Now, why, why do you think there were bees in Vegas? Why was there a, a beehive? Mm. 
my immediate thought runs to honey. There's some sort of <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely farm. part of it. Yeah. Right, okay. So th- there's a bee farm. Um, so Vegas is supposed to be okay. So Vegas is definitely a representation of a tre- of a pleasure island where people indulge, and in you know Disney um, in the Disney version, also in the original Toyland, Pleasure Island and Toyland, where the kids could play with toys all day and indulge as much as they want to but they were secretly turning into jackasses and being exploited for labor and turned into slave labor. So they're child Mm -hmm. trafficking basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the point of pleasure Island. And it was used as a way to say like the cautionary tale of like, if you believe the Pinocchio story, then pleasure Island is a very dangerous place to go. It's radioactive. It's the place Mm -hmm. that, that turns you into a mutant It mutates you. And uh, one of the ways that people will test to see if radioactivity is dangerous is bees. It's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Sure. And it, it's, it said it checked for radioactivity. It says that it was at a nominal level. And then the beehive is also proof. So basically, if you were living in a highly radioactive area and you had a beehive, that you would use that as a way to calibrate whether it was safe to go outside or not. If you have mm-hmm. bees outside the casino, which is where they were, then you'd be like, oh, okay. And now that these aren't just bees, these are living bees. These aren't replicants. Mm-hmm. They're original real bees. And then right after that, um, Villeneuve specifically references uh, this song, uh, AB Major, uh, Opus 39, uh, number 15 by uh, Johannes Brahms. And he says, this is a waltz that he hears just before he enters into it. And he says, it's a very important that you hear that. It's very subtle, but what's happening is Deckard is playing that waltz and it echoes out into the world echoes out outside the casino and Kay hears it. And he walks into the casino. When you hear a waltz, a waltz is a dance for two people. And this specific Mm -hmm. opus was written. So two people had to play it together. And um, he came up with versions where they, there were other, but originally it was written. So two, two, it took two piano players to play it together and it was sold as like sheet music. But what's interesting is specifically about Brahms was that he was uh, a German romanticist composer, but he was somebody that was extremely not of his time. He was very frustrated. He, he often resorted to a lot of the classicism and uh, he was like what other contemporary or peer composers were experiencing all this success. He was being um, rejected and undermined and often felt very like he was being overlooked as a great artist. Um, and basically what he was doing by indulging in this classicism in the age of romanticism was subverting it. And a lot of romanticism of the German romanticism was a direct response to French occupation of the Napoleonic, you know, after the Napoleonic wars and everything. So, or, um, so, so because of that, a lot of romanticism was a direct German reaction to French confrontation. It was a revolt. It was a cultural musical revolt that was inviting K into a dance. So that, which when you think about the intention is it's him going to Deckard that gets him to be introduced to the replicant underground. Mm-hmm. Now, um, which uh, so I, so what, what I think is most interesting about Vegas and the propaganda is so most AI stories and uh, most um, stories referencing Pinocchio tends to take the propaganda and say, oh, Treasure Island is a bad place, right? 
And I think what Villeneuve is saying is that don't just accept that it's dangerous. Everybody tells you it's radio radioactive so that you avoid it. When the truth, the moral sphere is saying, if you want the truth, you have to go into the place that's radioactive. You have to disobey. You have to lie to get into it. For K, he had to lie to protect himself. And like, so like a personal story for me was I was raised um, in a Mormon religion. I was raised uh, LDS. And uh, one of the things they told me, I I no longer believe in it. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for people who do still believe in it. And I'm good friends and family that are still connected to it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I no longer believe it. Um, But what's interesting is uh, growing up in that religion, they were told that uh, anything that criticizes the church or gets you to think critically about uh, the Book of Mormon is anti-Mormon, anti this, anti that. Whatever ant, whatever is anti is a kind of radioactivity. That's where the devil will get you. You don't want to wander into this. So mm-hmm. it was their way of inoculating the youth, or me in that case, from ever reading books that would get me to think critically about the claims of the church. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until you know, I went through this process of de-indoctrinating myself that I learned that the books that they were telling me to stay away from were the ones that had the most valuable information. So they were saying that those books are kind of pleasure Island where you can indulge. And the only reason people go there is to indulge in things. It's this, Mm -hmm. it's this horrible thing. So radioactivity to call something radioactive is a way to kind of control people from ever engaging it. They say, well, it's radioactive. I don't want to engage it. It's dogma. I don't want to challenge my dogma. And K in order to find the truth had to go into the place that everyone was telling him was radioactive and it wasn't true. That's why he, that's why bees were living there. And I think that's what Velnuve is saying. He's saying this isn't Pinocchio. He's using Pinocchio as an allegory to say Pinocchio is propaganda Peter and the wolf is propaganda. Joy is propaganda. Mm. And they're using propaganda to control him with all of these values of, I just want to be a real boy. I want it. And by real boy, he is putting the power on everybody else to say, I want to be regarded as a real boy is to say, my definition of myself is in the hands of other people. And I need my personal identity is completely determined by other people's opinions. That's why there's this push for him to be seen as a real boy. When in the end, it didn't matter whether he was seen as a real boy. It mattered if he could make the decisions for himself and cut those strings. Mm -hmm. The dependency on other people's opinions were his strings that kept him uh, living as a puppet. So that's why I don't think... 2049 is a propaganda piece. I believe it's, it's a piece of art that invites you to deconstruct itself in a very subtle subtext way, which gets us back to something we're starting to see as a pattern for Villeneuve, free will and propaganda. It's a recurring theme. I was literally, I was thinking the whole time that we were having the discussion last time about free will and determinism and then, yeah. and how that there's obviously a very strong impulse for him to discuss those themes Mm-hmm. throughout his oeuvre so so yeah, wh- why do you think he used like imagery like um you know he was constantly bouncing light off of water and projecting it on the walls 
constantly making it feel like the characters were underwater. And it's, it's very specific where he does that. Did you notice that pattern? Is it, it's in Wallace's place? In is, Wallace's is that, place. Is it in? Yep. Yeah. And where else is it? I'll just tell you, it's, it's that. Is it in Vegas? It is in Vegas. It's the scene where he meets all of the replicant underground. Right. Okay. So my theory is that he is using water as a metaphor for the subconscious, mm-hmm. which is traditional. Like, like the, the theory is every time you're diving underneath the water, you're diving into the subconscious, the, the inaccessible parts of ourself below the surface that are actually functioning and giving us values and determining what we want. What he's saying first is that Wallace is the propaganda machine that is determining his dreams. And the Voigtkampf is that Turing test. That's not just a test. It is a constant way of reinforcing that he always keeps the same values. He always keeps mm-hmm. his strings connected. Mm-hmm. Joy was one of his, his biggest strings that he, he depended on. And then, um, so all of a sudden the replicants come along, the replicant underground, and they say, actually, we have another narrative. We have a counter narrative. And notice that they look like they're underwater in the same way Wallace does. What they're doing is saying, you need to go kill Deckard. They're not saying go save him. They're not. He disobeyed what they said, what they wanted him to do. He said, mm-hmm. you need to go kill Deckard to keep us safe and keep our mission, protect our narrative. And what he does, and that's why I think like what he does is he goes... I think he already decided that he wasn't going to kill Deckard. Instead, he was going to try and save him, just like Pinocchio mm-hmm. tries to save his father, but for a completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think uh, um, Deck or K sets out to do that. That's why that moment where he's talking with Joy is the actual low point. It's mm-hmm. before that they represent a counter narrative to Wallace and to the LAPD or the Blade Runners, and they say we're here to start a revolution. I think what he says, he looks at Kay or Kay looks at joy and he sees everything I cared about is propaganda. It's a lie. I think they're lying to me too. So I'm going to engage this directly and I'm going to do what I need to do. That's when he cut the strings. If he would have just gone and killed Deckard, he's just a replicant for a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. He's just a puppet for the revolution. Instead, what he does is something much more sophisticated. What's that? He's, a, he's, a, he's the same puppet with a new master. Yeah, puppet this with a new master. So then this is the story about the puppet becoming his own master. He doesn't mm-hmm. kill Deckard. He figures out a way to protect Deckard and still preserve it. He plays his Which role. Is a, Go ahead. I, it's, it's why I think that like I, I love that that was the decision that was made in terms of the... <clears throat> the way that the story plays out for the metaphor to unra- to to unfold. Mm-hmm. The issue I have with it, though, coming into kind of the plot hole of it, is that yeah. in 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 requiring that exact scene to take place, it was it sort of undermines itself plot wise because nobody sees Deckard supposedly die. It's not. Yeah. The fact that he saves him from wait loath. Deckard or K, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. K saves Deckard, yeah. uh, uh, but we but 
who was there to see him die? No one. Yeah, he could. No you know, at any point, you can just say, "Oh, he's dead." Yeah, he's dead. I saw him die. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, there's no. You know, there's no. If there was some scene where it was caught on camera, where it looks like he dies, but he doesn't. You know, something. Yeah. But that's not there. So it's it's where the metaphor is taken to such, a, and it's it's a brilliant metaphor, and it's awesome, and and all of the kind of all the 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 depth of the treasure chest that you've you know brought us into is 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 a wonderful examination of 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 the metaphor but it falls short for me in a way that i think the first blade runner movie doesn't in that the that the the death of the antagonist mm-hmm. and the subsequent um the subsequent revelation that deckard is now free doesn't hold true you know so let me ask you a question is does does k die I believe so. I believe there were mortal wounds that he sustained during the battle with love. Yeah, mortal wounds, but he's a replicant. Yeah, but they still they still die at the same like if they get shot, they're Do still they bleed out. All I'm I saying is, remember. it was the ending was ambiguous enough, so yeah. it kind of okay. Let's let's talk real quick again about water. So we have the two mm-hmm. different things about submersion of, of water. That my theory is that when it rains, that's a metaphor for the world trying to say, look into your soul, look into your subconscious. Every time it's raining, like the first time you hear the the jingle is when joy touches rain. And what it is, is that's, that's a metaphor of the water pushing her into the subconscious. And the, the world is trying to say, look into your unconscious because that's where you're going to unravel all this dependency, all these loyalties. You're, that's where you'll find the scissors that'll cut your sc- I, screen. I just have this image of you every single time that it's raining outside. You're just looking out the window, going, "Look into your soul." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's the that's the metaphor that Villeneuve is is activating. Sure. I don't think it's true yeah, yeah. for every. I don't think the rain always represents. But in this case, I think it's. But it does in, in a lot of in a lot but, of, of of films especially that that imagery is used to represent some kind of awakening or discovery yeah, it's baptism from kind of internalization it's yeah absolutely mm-hmm. um but also notice what's the state of the water around the memory maker the state of the water uh snow it's solidified it snow? into snow yeah right it's a, it's a interior winter it's the only place mm-hmm. where it's winter is where the memories are Mm-hmm. where all the, the aspects of the unconscious are completely frozen, which again, I think that ties into the metaphor of this. This is where, you know, it's extremely fragile because it can melt and turn back into this liquid thing, but this is where it's an attempts to solidify his character. That's the key. So again, that I think that ties back into why uh, Anna is such a significant character for him overcoming and cutting his strings. Mm-hmm. Um, which again goes back to the free will and consciousness. Um, so yeah, I believe Blade Runner really is a movie about a war of propaganda and how propaganda affects our, affects our unconscious and the way that, uh, Villeneuve can activate these metaphors, uh, to get us to engage it. Like you can watch, you can watch it and just walk away thinking, oh, it's about Pinocchio and Peter and the wolf. And okay, he's a good boy now because he's free you know, 
But I think Villeneuve is setting it in there to invite you to deconstruct it specifically for that but reason. I, that is that dangerous in that in that it, on, it has it seems to have a different message on a superficial level. If, if if someone decided to just watch it and not diagnose it in the way that we're doing, mm-hmm. is there a possibility that you can come away from that thinking the message is about disobedience and disobedience is good? Is it a shallow uh, so- interpretation? Yeah. So that, that's the interesting thing is like all ideas are, are dangerous in really interesting ways. And artists are engaging ideas. I think the best thing any artist can do is get people to engage their dogmas and question their dogmas. That's not the only thing art should do. I think art should be used to build, build values, like build heroes, build sacred values. But it also it, it's kind of like every conversation. You want to build values as well as challenge them. And there should be a constant rotation. I think this is a movie that if you take it on its surface, it's a hero's journey. If you if you deconstruct it for what it is, I think it's actually much more sophisticated in that, where it's deconstructing the hero and saying that his real heroics isn't that he started lying, it's that he began to trust his own judgment over the submission and obedience to his authority figures. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this case, a lot of people walked away from it thinking, oh, he's going to join the revolution. He's actually saving the revolution with Deckard. No, he's not. He's subverting the revolution because he sees them as another form of authority. Mm-hmm. That's why I think mm-hmm. it's, it's much more sophisticated than just, you know, th- that, that whole conversation with Fraser felt stilted and strange in a very similar way as. Like you don't want to take their side. You're not, you, you don't necessarily feel like, oh, these are my people. Like yeah, there is no presented no in kind of this like matrix uh, tableau mm. where it feels like, you know, it feels like, Oh, here's, here's Morpheus. Here's all these icons yeah. are all dressed in this fashion, this Zion. but notice yeah. they're treading through shallow water intentionally. He's, he's saying that this is a form of like, of subconscious indoctrination. Mm-hmm. But at this point he's like, no, I'm not going to just going to do what they tell me, but I do care about Deckard. So I do want to engage this. I do want to set him free. Speaking about him doing what they tell him, based on everything we've discussed so, thus far, then if we're it, so, he achieves catharsis in your perspective during the Blue Fairy Epiphany. He achieves what, catharsis, as in he has that that revelation of, of what, what what he what he must do. He has the moment. Okay, I have a very different idea of catharsis. So, no, I wouldn't say he achieves okay, catharsis. Okay, okay, the final confrontation with the moral imperative. Would that be the better way of? What's that? Like the, the the final the final his final confrontation with the moral imperative where where suddenly he realizes what he what he needs to do. Okay, yeah, his arc at the end of his arc. His, yeah. Sure. So the completion of the arc. Yeah. Does that take place if love doesn't destroy joy? No. It doesn't. If it he doesn't. still has joy, if he's still like that's the irony is love set him free from the from the facade of joy. And why Which does that is, happen? That's the literally the that's the allegory. Love set him free from false joy. <laughs> but we were, so, but, and love but in this we case, saying, love is not a virtue. Love is not a necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's a powerful weapon that is used to uh, that he has to confront with, or that he has to sure. confront in order to engage his authenticity. He has to sure. battle through love in order to find himself. Which sounds mm-hmm. really 
cliche and corny, but that's what's fun about it. He's he's using these no, tropes, makes sense. love and joy. I, I, I think we, I think we struggle labels. with the idea of love. We we struggle with the idea of love in English because love gets conflated to mean some kind of fuzzy emotion. When yeah. I think it's more, it's clearer when you look at it in Latin languages that love is actually an action. Love is a verb. When you look at it, like the difference between amar, you know, uh, like the the feeling that you the feeling that. It's, it's a strange one because the feeling that you're experiencing when you're in love with someone generally is joy. You can love someone and be in pain. You can love someone and hurt. But the general feeling you have of when, you, when you're in love with someone is joy. The feeling is not love. Love is an action. And yeah. so you're like, she represents this active force, this like all powerful force, as you described it, like that is, mm-hmm. that has been the one that's affected his, uh, his being subservient to joy almost. Yeah. It's come in and wiped this, the, Slay clean. So what I would say is like, so a lot of people look at love as the moral good, the ultimate moral good. Mm-hmm. When I think this movie is making the case that love is not a moral good, it is simply a powerful tool that really strongly motivates us. Like, you know, I, I have no doubt like the, the Manson family loved Charles Manson, loved mm-hmm. him in the purest sense of they saw the world from they extended their emotional nerves into him. And when he suffered, they suffered. Took action on his behalf instead of on their own behalf is the way I would describe exactly. it. Like the yeah. yeah. But it, it was love that was keeping those strings bound. So what's mm-hmm. what they're saying, what I believe Villeneuve is saying is love is not some moral good. It can be, it can serve moral good, but it's morally neutral. Mm-hmm. And, and the loyalty love is usually what drives loyalty. Like that's why her, loyalties were completely unmatched she was totally obsessed with her view of being seen as the best one you probably mm-hmm. by wallace he she she wanted wallace to see her as the ultimate replicant she felt threatened by k mm-hmm. so you know that that's where the metaphor is that love isn't you know it, it's not a moral good it's a moral neutral that powerfully motivates people often to do evil and you know, lots, mm-hmm. lots of people are motivated by compassion and love to do some of the worst things in the worst atrocities. Um, I was wondering where you're going to go the other direction with it, because when we discussed the, like the on the nose nature of the names, joy and love, you were talking about, well, maybe the, it's the, it, it, it's subversive, right? It, it actually means the opposite. So like joy is actually indicative of K's true pain. Maybe love is actually the, you know, the antithesis, maybe hate is more reflective of her actual personality. But no, I, I don't think well, it's like, is- yeah, I don't think it's subversive in the negation. I think it's subversive okay. in the expectation, you know, like, okay. You know, love isn't, you know, it's love is presented as an ideal. It's, it's not an ideal. It's a very powerful drive, which is different from an mm-hmm. ideal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to get into s- stuff about like simulation and simulacra and some Baudrillard, which this directly engages, which gets into that, the idea of like, uh, propaganda taking on the form of the way it represents reality and that rap- reality is being replaced by simulations and that there is no actual mm-hmm. reality anymore. There's just simulation. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's, you know, we, we can dive into that. I, I, I don't think we need to quite go into there just cause it's uh, we, we've covered what I think is the real soul of this, which sure. is the nature of free will and propaganda. And I think it's a theme that Villeneuve explores in a really sophisticated way, but I think he keeps exploring it over and over and over again. I think um, Arrival was largely a film about free will 
and propaganda. Mm. And then uh, later we're going to be doing Dune and guess what? <laughs> um, nice. Nice. Okay. I do so want you to tell me what Marvel movie is, is just blatant propaganda though. Anyway, I did at some point need you to, <laughs> to get we, we can do a deconstruction of it. And, and I enjoy Marvel movies. I enjoy some of the Marvel movies quite a bit. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, oh, real quick. Since we're here, I, I feel like we need to just talk about plot. I don't know if we can call them plot holes, but I do have questions. And you brought up probably one of the biggest ones, which is mm-hmm. how is him saving him? Like, how is him like, there's no proof that he's dead. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if they came up with a body that matched his DNA of Deckard and they showed him mutilate. Yeah. That would prove he's dead. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a big plot question. I had a few other plot questions. Is K the decoy copy of Anna? I would say yes. I think that's the entire purpose of his existence. Okay. That's why he's been given. So that's what I took from that too. If that's true, couldn't he, when he figured out that there was a, a a decoy copy and he thought, Oh my gosh, it's me. I'm the original. And that sister was the decoy copy. Couldn't he, since he already has the, the DNA of the girl, couldn't he just do a DNA test on himself and see if it matched. He doesn't have is to go to he, Deckard. He doesn't have to go to anywhere else to figure out if he, if he is, uh, if his, if his DNA matches. But I don't think he's a DNA copy. I think that he's on, he's a copy in, 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 in respect to his memories only. I think that he's been given the illusion that he is this person. So um, he's given the illusion. But, his- so you're saying he wasn't the DNA copy. Of, I don't think he's a carbon copy. No, I don't, I don't think that he's, that he has. Do you remember the scene DNA. I'm talking about where he's going through and comparing the two DNA sets? Yeah. And yeah, they say, yeah. Oh, there was a girl who died and then a little boy. And he, that's when he becomes convinced. Oh, I think I'm that boy. Here's. But he says one set. of them is not, one of them is not real because yeah. two people cannot have the exact same DNA. Even, and the, even sub, and the subtext is, is that the girl is the one that's not real. He thinks the girl's not, she, he thinks the yeah. girl's the copy and he's the one that was actually born. That's mm-hmm. what leads him to think that he's the real boy. If that's true, all he's got to do is run a DNA test on himself, which I'm sure he's done and compare it to that DNA. But is the DNA file that's on the system his actual DNA. That's like, my if question. He, if that's yeah. true, doesn't that say? But I would, yeah. I my, I would imagine that if he checked his DNA, he'd probably find out that it's not the same. That that the, the, it's only digital. So he's not the like decoy. He, he just is, accidentally happened to. So so he's one of many decoys because he, um, because he has the memory true. implanted. But he's not the DNA decoy that he found in the DNA machine. Yeah, I'd say that's likely unless like, cause we don't know the technology. I don't know if he was made with her sure. DNA, but I would imagine no, probably not possible. Especially okay. given that. So that, that's a bit of a loose end for me that I'm like, that could have been cleared up a little bit, but it's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I still go along with it. Uh, my next question was uh, why didn't love kill K after he took uh, her, after he took out her entire crew. So they're in Vegas. She comes in with the crew he kills her entire team and she barely gets away or she gets away with Deckard, but she has the chance to kill him. Why didn't she kill him? 
That's not her mission? Is she ob obedient? Is she supposed to kill him? Was she told to kill him? She's why wouldn't to get, she? To get Decker, I don't right? see any reason why she would leave him to live. In fact, he's only a consistent threat. In fact, she wanted to prove that she was better than him by beating him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if something to think about. That's that's something yeah. that I'm like, uh, that feels like a plot hole. Why would she, why? And that's a dramatic. That's in the dramatic structure. That's not in the metaphor or the subtext. It's mm -hmm. it, if she's that, you know, down that aggressive. I think she would have killed him. She had a chance to kill him. He he took out her entire team. He was trying to kill her. There's no reason she would have left him alive. That feels a little bit like uh, that. That plotting could have been a little stronger, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And then the next one. This is kind of a big one too. If Deckard's knowledge of his own daughter threatens the underground replicant movement and he's taken by Wallace, why would they depend on a replicant, Kay, uh, that they just met to carry out such a sensitive mission? Wouldn't they just send the team of themselves? Like, why do they send Kay to do it rather than do it themselves? Yeah. And if Kay's. Sorry, if, if Deckard's memory or his knowledge is the problem. If he's trying to save his own daughter, I know it sounds morbid, but wouldn't he just take his own, his own life? First of all, second of all, why is it only him when he's not the only one with the knowledge? Is it that, is it that Wallace thinks that Deckard is the only one with the knowledge and that there's nobody else that has, or is it, is it he, he like the underground, the underground movement is just completely unknown to everybody. Like they, ha they all yeah. have the knowledge. Yeah. They all know about her. They all, I don't know, know if they all know who she is, but they all know she exists. Mm -hmm. And in, so according to that own logic, I just don't see them sending this guy who they just recruited and saying, by the way, we exist. This is a movement. Now go perform this very sensitive mission that our entire yeah. purpose depends on. And not yeah. only that, if that's true, then the first thing they would do is go and get her out of there. She would not be waiting in the memory center for Decker to show up. She would, they would have, the replicants would have gotten her out of there and tried to disappear just because she's under threat. She wouldn't be sitting there waiting when Decker showed up. So those, those are things that are like, if you, if you're investing in the well-being of the, or in the, the, not the well-being, if you're investing in the, the, the believability of the rules of the universe, those are the measures I think they would have taken to protect their interests. Yeah. So. And if they knew, if they knew where Deckard was, which they obviously did because they picked up Kay after Deckard had been kidnapped. Yeah. Then yeah. why did they leave him alone in there? Wouldn't they take him out if they thought that? Yeah. Wouldn't they take both of them out now? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it, it all comes down to, it, it becomes useful on the metaphorical level, but I'm not sure it's practical in the plotting. I, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that these characters would make these decisions with these stakes. And that's, yeah. that's where it starts to be like, you know, and also your point about like, just because, you know, everybody else drowned doesn't mean that, you know, there's still no body for Deckard and yeah. Wallace, his entire future financial future is based on making sure that he gets the information from Deckard. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. He's, he's a man with a lot of resources and all of a sudden he's now very incentivized to find out who this replicant child is so yeah. yeah it's it's 
those are things that I think are, it's all about like Kay's point of view. He, it took it to the fulfillment of what Kay could do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm fine with that, but it does raise questions that I'm like, I'm not fully convinced of these plot points. Yeah. Which is another reason why I find the first film has more strengths just because I, I, I couldn't, I never came across anything in watching the first one where I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. That, 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 that that unravels the whole dynamic of the plot. And I also felt like the, the emotional resonance of the, the act taken by the I can't remember the the rep, the blonde haired replicant's name at the end of the uh, of the first film but yeah with the, the action that he yeah. yeah yeah the action that he takes at the end has more emotional resonance to me in terms of of mm-hmm. get, bringing of getting the metaphor across than yeah. than Blade Runner 2049 so that's why that's why I said at the beginning I do feel like the first movie now to me has is a lot stronger mm. having watched this a second time and, and gone through it analytically Mm-hmm. The first movie I don't think has that has those same plot holes and do, and and has a much much stronger ending than mm-hmm. than this. Even though I, I again the metaphor here is great and so and it, and it's it's executed so well just in terms of like it you know visually Denis Villeneuve is an amazing director but yeah all these plot holes do weaken it significantly. Yeah, yeah they they compromise my emotional investment because I'm sitting here trying to figure out would they really do that. When, you know, they want you to be immersed in it emotionally, like, you know, oh shit, you know, this is, this is what's really at stake and you're going to feel it. Yeah. So that said, I still, I love this movie. I think it's beautiful. I love the execution of it. I think that, you know, he approached it very different than Ridley Scott. Um, And I'm very glad that Villeneuve got to do it because originally Ridley Scott was going to direct it, but his, his slate was too full. And Villeneuve, I think was a great choice for, for doing it rather than him. Yeah, so that's uh, any any other thoughts to kind of wrap up with twenty forty nine. No, obviously, I, I got, if we hadn't have addressed it at the beginning, I would have brought up the kind of the plot issues. Um, yeah, but we we got we got to that. Um, cool. No, I think it, it's yeah we, we we've covered all the the, the main details. Um, cool. Well, why don't you tell the audience real quick? Uh, we we covered this in the last podcast, but I want to make sure that we're uh, reminding people like where they can check out uh, your work, and then I got a couple announcements as well. Okay, brilliant. Cheers. Um, no, I, I, as always, Adam, like I'm, I'm I'm delighted to have done this now for a second time. I want to keep doing a load of these with you, yeah, so I really absolutely. appreciate you having me on to do it. It's it's so much fun uh, digging into it, and not only for the fact that I I get like I feel like I'm getting a lesson while I'm also you know. Um, <laughs> kind of talking through these things, getting to express myself. And it means that I'm learning more as a filmmaker as well for everybody who's watching at home. Um, I am, my production company is Wild Stag Productions. You can find me at Wild Stag Media on all the different social social media platforms. Um, And I have a feature film that's out on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, YouTube movies, uh, Tubi in the States. It's called Follow the Dead. It was my first feature film straight out of college, and I'm currently in the process of making the sequel to that as well. So go go check that out. And if you want to see what we're doing in terms of behind the scenes, um, other different different things we've got going on um, over on my platform, I'll also be promoting what we're doing here with Adam as well, which is it just, it, again is is uh, so um, encouraging for me. Um, yeah, there's lots of really good stuff that's coming out soon, and, and new things that we were doing. So uh, please go over and, and check it out. 
And I appreciate Fantastic. you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Really, really good stuff. Go check out Wild Stag Productions. Um, and then on my end, uh, uh, officially I'm announcing, so I'm bringing Story by Numbers back. Uh, I, I took it off the market because I wanted to rework it. There's some things I didn't like about it. I got some good feedback uh, from some people, so I think it's going to be much stronger now. Uh, so Story by Numbers is going to be available. You can go check it out. It'll be available uh, through the website. Uh, and then the other thing is I'm going to start doing uh, consultations. I've had a lot of emails uh, from people uh, looking for help either with the scripts that they've already written or with scripts that they're in development with pricing and the scheduling and everything will be on the website. Um, we're already starting to build a wait list uh, since we, we did the initial uh, announcement. So get on the wait list and uh, I'll be making myself available and um, yeah, it'll be fun to work with you guys. Uh, thanks so much again, Adam, for being a part of this and for indulging me in this conversation. I like to go deep and learn as much as I can. I also love how you challenge and push back and I, I have a lot to learn and I'm probably wrong about half the shit I say. So help. Uh, thanks for keeping me on track. Be sure to subscribe at cinematicore.com and you get all the updates and announcements, all the swag. And if you want to download the diagrams, uh, for this, uh, for this podcast, all the charts and everything that we cover, that's all going to be on there as well. Also on the website, uh, there's going to be a little section where you can send us questions that we're going to be covering uh, in the podcast. So uh, feel free to reach out and um, also check out the storyboarding, cinematic storyboarding class that I'm going to be offering in 2024. Uh, have a great week and we'll see you soon. You've got a story inside you, a screenplay no one has ever thought of, a novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept, but you don't know how to develop a character, much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step -step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multidimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the 4-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the 4-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive, to plotting conflicts that expose character, to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, 
ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately, they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate or not? Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more. Better. Faster. Doper. 